I went from zero to millions by 21. That is going to be massive in the next five years. You're moving into the entrepreneur seat. And in the entrepreneur seat, you orchestrate the solution. I don't have a skill. Anything that's too freely available loses its value. Cristiano Ronaldo has more followers than every single football club combined. Most of the real money that is made is not in starting businesses. It's in scaling them. When you've got money, money doesn't solve many problems. It's actually just a commodity. Daniel Priestley, thank you very much for joining me. Thanks for having me on the podcast. No problem. I heard you've had a very uh, busy week in Mad, Dubai. Massive week. It's hard not to have a busy week in Dubai. It's yeah. one of those cities where the answer is yes. What do you want to do? What, what was the uh, the sort of plan for coming here? Was it to network? Uh, I got invited to come to a couple of conferences uh, and, spe- and be a speaker. And I do a little bit of business here. And basically, when I said yes to two things that were a week apart, then the middle of the week just filled itself and it was it was great. Yeah. How often do you do this kind of thing? Because you are, you're in a position now where you own multiple businesses, mm-hmm. which quite clearly are doing very well. So how much of a need for that is for you to be doing things like this? You know what? It's rare. I, I'm, I'm a dad of three little kids mm-hmm. um, and I mostly work from home. And it looks pretty glamorous. I've got all these businesses and 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 books and stuff. But actually, I spend most of my time hanging around Wimbledon uh, with my kids and and uh, all of that sort of stuff. So it's very nice to get a week in Dubai. Mm-hmm. And the you've done two masterminds this week from friends, which I'm quite close with. Yeah, I wonder what do you do that for? The, is it the money or is it for you meeting contacts there? Uh, it's a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. it's nice to get paid for these things, right? It's crazy to get paid for these things when mm-hmm. people invite you to come and speak and they say, we'll pay you to come and talk, right? That's it. That's ridiculous. And it's it's not my core thing that I do, but it's, yeah, of course it's nice. But actually the fun of like those masterminds, one was at a massive house on the Palm and one was at the W mm-hmm. and everyone's a really cool, interesting person. And we just sit around talking business, which is my favorite thing to do anyway. Yeah. So to get paid to do something you enjoy is uh you know there's have, worse there's worse problems met someone who you've gone into business with at one of those masterminds um probably i don't do a lot of them but yeah um to varying degrees not i'm just trying to think i i haven't no i don't think my current business partners have been met through masterminds mm-hmm. so the accent is quite clearly not a british one you're from australia yeah so i think for, the, for those people who don't know let's go into the backstory and how you kind of got into doing what you're doing and the success that you've had you you started uh you joined a startup when you were around 19 is that correct yeah so australian by birth i was 19 years old dropped out of university and i went and worked for this guy uh doing a startup and it was basically i was employee number three we were sitting around at a table. We didn't have a, a name for the business, didn't have a bank account, didn't have any of that sort of stuff. Um, and I got the experience of almost an entrepreneurial apprenticeship uh, where I was 19, he was 37. Uh, and we went from complete standing start to about 6 million of revenue and 60 people uh, within two years. And it was just that experience of hiring people, running marketing campaigns, doing sales and marketing, um, uh, coming up with product ideas, naming the business, uh, creating a, an annual campaign, an annual like calendar of events. So all of that sort of stuff happened intensely for two years where I went from zero to millions by 21. Mm-hmm. And then when I got to 21, uh, I just hit a home run uh, in my role, in my job. And I went to him and I asked him for equity. 
And I said, can I get some shares in your business? And he said, if you want shares in a business, you need to go start your own business. So I, um, I thought that was his, him giving me his blessing. And in actual fact, uh, he was telling me no, mm-hmm. but I quit and <laughs> went and started my own business. Do you think he expected you to quit? No, I he didn't. Ex- no, not at all. No, I, I picked the wrong moment and, um, like he, you know, if you're, I, you're 21, I was 21 <laughs> for equity, <laughs> equity yeah. yeah. And, um, and I picked the wrong moment and like, I was so like such a beginner, like so green. I was just at the beginning of my journey and, um, no, I don't think he expected me to do that. But then I went off and started a business and I just kind of was already in the rhythm of how to do all the stuff that grows business. And then I very rapidly grew my own business. So, um, Launched with three friends. Uh, it was my business, but I, I brought three people in to work in the business. Um, we got got started straight away. Did uh, about one point three million in the first year with about four hundred grand profit. So, like you know, a good start to first year in business at twenty one, twenty two, and then it scaled up really quickly. And we we were doing over ten million in year three worth of sales, and um, yeah, and it was it was just a wild sort of ride between. What, in, what industry was this in? So we were a performance marketing agency and the business was essentially taking an established product or brand and then our specialty was running something called introduction events. So introduction events are essentially where you get speakers and you get you host conferences and it's a way of introducing people to um, that business. So uh, you're normally looking at something more complex than a traditional, you know, sort of retail sale or something. So we do, we, we specialized in doing roadshows for franchises, financial planning related businesses. Um, so yeah, kind of the, uh, one of the, this one was of, before social media, way before social, yeah. this is 2002, 2002, 2003. So well, yeah, this so is before no, nothing, MySpace. Nothing was about that. Nothing was about, no, we had, um, uh, messaging apps. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So no, this was very early. Is it, is it, is that industry still, relevant now or is it just is it it's kind of there but it's different i don't know if it's an industry it was just a like it was just a thing that we knew how to do and Mm -hmm. um i mean a lot of people do run introduction events now as as a thing and it would work now it would absolutely work um you take any business that takes its foot off the gas with sales and marketing strap performance marketing at the front performance marketing is just kind of like lead generation and sales generation and rather than branded marketing where you're just simply kind of like promoting the brand in general you're actually asking people to respond to a campaign and book into something and you're managing that initial flow of leads into appointments into sales so we just handled that it's a great business to scale because you don't have to worry about customer delivery Mm-hmm. So that was the beauty of it that we had, we essentially were partnering with someone who could do a thing and then we would just generate all the sales for them and, and get a really good cut of those initial sales. Do you think you would have gotten into doing that yourself if no. you hadn't asked your <laughs> boss for sh- equity? No, not at all. I, I would. Do you ever uh, think about that? Like if you ended up just staying at that original job? Uh, well, no, I would have always been an entrepreneur. There's no you question. You always had it in you. I, that's why I joined. Yeah. Um, and that's why I dropped out of university. Mm-hmm. So at uni, I did one year. I was running nightclub parties. Um, I was selling roses door to door. I was like studying how McDonald's worked because I wanted to understand systems. I knew I wanted to be an entrepreneur. I joined university because someone told me that this particular uni course would help me be an entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. As soon as I realized it wouldn't, I dropped. Yeah, that was a mistake I made. I went to university thinking that this was going to teach me how to 
run a business. What course did you do? I did economics and business management. Yeah. So I did. So I thought it was a solid. This is a solid degree. It's going to get me teach me all the things. Yeah. And within, I remember the first few months of doing it. I was like, why is this just, it's just formulas, it's maths, it's everything which I was doing at A-level, basically. I'm Did just you going, ever talk to your lecturers and ask them whether they had a business? I, know, I didn't even need to ask them, I just knew yeah. they didn't. Well, that was my turning point. Yeah. My turning point was when I went and kind of asked all my lecturers, have you ever started a business, have you run mm-hmm. a business? And one guy says to me, uh, I, I teach kids how to swim in my parents' pool. And I'm like, how, how many kids? And he's like, I've got 12. I'm like like ten dollars a week or something and i'm like okay that that's that yeah. that's the that's the only person who's entrepreneurial at all in this whole thing so mm. I, I was out of there it was weird too because when i'm running the nightclub parties at that time I, i'm standing in on a dj box throwing prizes out into the crowd and i've got thousand people there with paying 10 bucks a head and we're running fashion parades and the whole thing's going off and i've got my lecturers asking me what it's like mm. <laughs> <laughs> did you ever think you would end up working in the nightlife industry? Yeah, I probably did at the time. Mm. Um, you know, at the time I wasn't I, like I'd have. I'd, it's a long time ago. I'm 42 now, so this was like 25 years ago. But um, I was loving being a nightclub party promoter. That was amazing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like yeah, it was. What more do you want when you're 18? Yeah, yeah. And I was like the nightclub party promoter entrepreneur. This is also why I knew I really wanted to be an entrepreneur. Because everyone thought I was the cool guy. Mm. Um, so I went from being the geeky guy in high school to being the cool guy the very next year just because I'm an entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. It, was, it was great. <laughs> so a, a couple of years into this business which you started with your friends, were you already at the point where you were almost like a millionaire in your mid-20s? Yeah. Uh, well, the, when I was 24, I got a $14 million offer to, buy, to sell the company. Um, so the business was, you know, that size mm-hmm. um and um it didn't transpire we ended up getting into a massive fight and um and like almost suing each other and all this sort of stuff but around that time i'd built but this a, is just with the people that wanted to buy the, yeah were they gonna buy the whole thing or just they, the, they were gonna buy the whole thing yeah they were gonna basically um they were gonna float their company we were their sales engine and they wanted us to stop dealing with any other customers and just come in-house and only be their ex- uh, exclusive sales engine so they were going to buy us in mm. Looking back at that, have you got any advice for people who are looking to exit? Don't pick a fight with someone who's trying to give you $14 million. (laughs) (laughs) That would be, that would be a a key piece of advice. Um, I think the stress and the pressure of the whole like size and scope and and the year that I just had, we'd, we'd had a massive year leading up to that. Um, and it was, the negotiations were right before Christmas and I was exhausted and, um, physically run down, mentally run down, uh, under a lot of pressure personally with family mm-hmm. and all that sort of stuff. And yeah, we it just, we, we just fell out. And it, I mean, it sounds crazy. Everyone who hears that story is like, oh, but there must be more to it. No, not really. I flew across. We were meant to have a board meeting. We were meant to have a big meeting and sort of, you know, finalize heads of terms and all that sort of stuff. They left me sitting in a boardroom for six, six hours, um, while they were having another meeting and yeah, that would annoy me. Yeah. And, <laughs> and put the hand down on the table and said, you know, disrespected, it's not, not okay. This has been really, you know, you know, I've cut, you know, right before Christmas and that just started escalating and 
And then I told them what I really thought, which is I, I thought that they were um, neglecting their franchisees and that they weren't training people well. And so I just sort of let, let loose on them and all the things that I thought they were doing wrong. Mm-hmm. And that basically yeah, didn't go down well. And that didn't go down so well. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so the advice is shut up and take the money mm-hmm. uh, would have been a, a different approach. So you you ended up just you just shut that business down? You closed it? No, they represented a major chunk of revenue. Mm-hmm. And... We had three other clients at the time, which were chunky, multi-million dollar revenue, but these guys were big, big uh, revenue. And um, I went to a mentor of mine and I went to a business coach and talked about, okay, I've got to replace that revenue. I've got to do something. How I've got to basically bring, bring, uh, bring something back in. And one of my mentors said, have you ever thought of going to the UK? It's three times the, as many people and the pound is three times to the dollar and um, you should just go and do a few years there and you could, why not let this office here keep doing a couple of million while you go over to the UK and relaunch in London and actually take what you know and, and do it in, in London. Mm-hmm. So I kind of relaunched in, in London in 2005-06. Did you have a lot of experience with mentors in your... I've always had great mentors around. So Is that something you would you would advise people to seek, especially young people. It's so valuable. And look, this is the other thing. A lot of people talk about YouTube videos as mentors, and people talk about books as mentors. No, no, no. Those are good resources, but a mentor is someone that you really work with. You work you 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 work around that person. Um, we might have called it an, an apprenticeship at one point. Um, and if you want to be an entrepreneur, I'm really big on the idea that you do an entrepreneur apprenticeship. So I see a lot of people, they're like, oh, I'm going to go off and start something and all that sort of stuff. Uh, I, I'm lucky enough to know people now who have built multi-billion dollar businesses. And in many cases, they worked very closely with a billionaire before building a multi-billion dollar business. Um, they work in and around the environment um, and then they go off and do something. Mm-hmm. So for anyone who's young, you got to remember that the average age of someone who starts a successful business is like 42 and the average age of an exit, a multi-million dollar exit is like 57. So if you've, if you're younger than that, you've got time to do a year or two with a, with a mentor working in and around a successful business and just do that little bit of an apprenticeship. Because when you work around these types of people, you Mm -hmm. see how the game works behind the scenes. You see how things actually happen and it's not the glossy bit on the YouTube channel. It's all the gritty stuff behind the scenes. And it's just also being in the momentum, being in the wake of someone who is, you know, doing deals and, and getting things done. Do you think some of it is luck though? Because you could join the early stages of a startup and it could do extremely well, like the one you joined mm. and you learned a lot from it. You could also have the experience of being in a complete opposite situation where yeah. the team is this it's a shitty team it doesn't do very well and then i guess you probably still will learn to some extent what it's yeah. like to run a business but you know it's well for starters most of life is luck yeah. right most everything is luck I, I just called an uber here and you know the guy he's from pakistan and he's over here driving uber to send money back to his wife and kids yeah. in pakistan and you know he just started from a much less lucky space than me starting in Australia. Mm-hmm. And that sucks, right? There's no difference between us. And, you know, I just got lucky just where I was born. Mm-hmm. So most of life is luck. Um, if you happen to be born, you know, in, a, in the right country, you've already got a huge amount of luck and you shouldn't discount that. But 
you can also control some luck. So who you choose to go and work with is also within, you know, you can make a short list of 10 companies that you respect and admire and they've got momentum and you like their product and you like the founder and you've done your research and for all of the right reasons, you kind of like reach out, contact them um, and and say, look, I'm I'm prepared to show up and do what needs to be done. You know, when I showed up at John's place, he had this beautiful big home, massive house on the water. And straight away, I'm like, I'm going to work for this guy. Mm. Um, if he lives here, I've never been in a house this big, right? So I'd never been through a door like his front door. And I just went, I'm going to work for this guy. So when I showed up, I was enthusiastic and I said, whatever you need me to do, if I need to drive you to the airport and carry your bags, if you need, if you want me to hit phones, if you want to lick stamps and send envelopes out, I'm going to do what you need me to do. Mm. Um we ended up having a great conversation. What was nice is that I had shown some initiative with my nightclub parties and he really latched onto that. He knew I had some entre- entrepreneurial spark and I could get stuff done. Um, so I wasn't like begging for a job. I was like, no, I'm going to be successful with it without you, but I would, I, I see you as a mentor figure. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I'll, you know, whatever you want to pay me, pay me what you want. That's, it's interesting. Even when I'm looking to hire talent, I'm looking for those young people who are extremely enthusiastic and just i mean ideally they they know who i am to begin with and they're a fan and they're just they want the best for me yeah and they probably put some runs on the board in some way mm-hmm. you can see the seed of of potential yeah i always like to see like of course their their past work and what they're capable of yeah but for okay so for those people who maybe they don't maybe they're already working they have some sort of job and they're unable to join a startup mm-hmm but they don't have enough well, why money. Why would they be unable to join a startup? Well, I suppose they could just quit. Yeah. yeah. Like what I'm describing is is a step towards entrepreneurship where if you work for a massive corporate and that corporate has thousands of employees and you are just a number to them, I'm saying go work for a company that has 20 or 30 people where you get to kind of see what everyone does. And it's not that you're you know, throwing your life away and taking a huge risk, you're just moving from a large corporate to a smaller business. If you know you want to end up as an entrepreneur, then it's, 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 not, an, it's not a highly risky uh, step. I mean, if, if that feels incredibly risky, then don't be an entrepreneur. Yeah, especially if you don't have kids, you don't have a partner. Yeah, exactly. You can, yeah, you can suck it up and you, yeah. live for a bit. And also small businesses in many cases pay reasonably the same as big businesses like mm-hmm. you might discover that a small dynamic fast growth little business is also paying something like your corporate job pay mm-hmm. interesting so when you moved over to london mm-hmm. did you start up a new company when you moved there yeah i started a new company but it was very similar concept um slightly nuanced i was i decided to do two contracts to bring people into london um so i i basically secured uh, an Asian uh, Singaporean business that wanted to launch in the UK and I agreed their roadshow to basically launch them and then a, a US company that wanted to come into the UK secured their roadshow but I was still running these events right mm-hmm. so it was very much event driven we would do the sales and the marketing and all this sort of stuff so lots and lots of work around that we launched um, very fast growth four million pounds worth of sales in the first year built a team of like 15, 20 people in the first year, got a really great office in, you know, in, in London and away we went. And I did this all from a credit card. Like I, I rocked up with a credit card and a suitcase. I didn't know anyone. 
literally turned up to Latin jive dancing classes and I'm dancing with all the girls and saying, do, do you know anyone who could be a good assistant? Do you know anyone, <laughs> do you know anyone who can hit the phones? Like, mm-hmm. um, so I'm like, cause in, in dance classes, you get like about 30 seconds to a minute with each person. So I'm kind of like, Hey, by the way, I've just arrived and I'm starting a business, do you know? <laughs> so I recruited my team through Latin jive dancing. <laughs> <laughs> No, my dad does that. He does he uh, does salsa classes. Brilliant. He's always saying I should do it. Highly recommend. <laughs> um, so that was all doing well. And then was there a point where when there was the was it two thousand eight two thousand nine where it didn't? Yeah, two thousand eight well. two thousand nine we crash. Yeah. So what happened is the U.S. company um, we couldn't afford to do the same deal because the U.S. dollar to the pound really collapsed. It was mm. absolutely wild at the time. The pound was really strong against the dollar and then it just dumped. Mm-hmm. And it meant that effectively our cost of doing business with them went up by tens of thousands a month while the economy went down. So mm-hmm. I just, just basically said it's unaffordable. And they said, well, we trade in US dollars, so we're not going to do anything. We just, you know, you need to pay us in US dollars. And I'm mm-hmm. like, okay, well, that's done. And then the company in Singapore, they almost collapsed during that time um, because of their global business and um, they just decided to go right back to their core business in Singapore. So I found myself with millions of pounds worth of revenue in one year and then nothing to sell the following year. Mm -hmm. Uh, One Christmas party, there's like 20 of us having a great time because we've just had a great year. The following year, there's three or four of us around a table like what the hell just happened. Um, So it was like a complete standing start. And around that time, I tried to sell the business, and this is where I got like a next to nothing offer. I got like three hundred thousand pounds as the distress sale offer. I'm like, I got to figure this out. What am I doing wrong? It's a bit different from that fourteen mil. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. That, that was a step in the wrong direction, right? <laughs> um, so, so I, um, so this is where I started like going back to mentors. There's a bit of a recurring theme now that you mention it, but I went back to mentors, went back to consultants. And said, why am I only getting, like, I know people who have got tech companies and they've got tens of millions valuation and why am I doing millions of revenue, great profit, you know, fast growth, and I'm not worth much. They're like, oh, because you're a broker. I'm like, what do you mean? They're like, all you do is sell other people's stuff. You're a, you know, you're a front end engine. I'm like, okay, but that's a business. Like, it's a proper business. We have clients. We have, we make sales. We make money. They're like, yeah, but you don't own any any of the assets. You you are essentially sweating the assets of someone else. They said, like, if you, the the analogy was like, if you imagine a Mayfair property, and then someone else's job is to rent that property out. Well, the Mayfair property is valuable, but the person whose job is to rent mm. it out, they're not very valuable. They're just a broker. I'm like, oh, and they're like, your business is a glorified broker for these other clients of yours. I'm like, whoa, okay. So that's when I understood that, or that's when I went on a big um, kind of reevaluation of my life and my business strategy around how am I going to rebuild this business. Went through the whole process of understanding what are assets, what are the assets you can own, what are the assets that a business can own, what are what are things like data assets, what are things like channels to market assets, what are brand assets, um, owning product and services that you actually have your own proprietary product and service ecosystem. So went through that whole process of understanding how all that works. Um, and then within a couple of years, we actually raised money at £9 million valuation. So at the time, that was about $14, $15 million, right? So I'd gotten back to having a valuable business. But this time it was stable. It was the first. But what, what were the assets in this business that you owned? 
Well, we formalized our own brand. We got rid of the whole idea of being an engine room for somebody else. We owned our own products and developed our own products and services. Everyone fit within our products and our brands. We formalized channels to market that collected data. We started developing our own software, intellectual property, and media assets. So we just started accumulating all this stuff of our own. All the stuff that we knew we needed from the client, Mm -hmm. we just started developing our own asset ecosystem. Um, The first exit had been lucky. They wanted to pay us because they didn't want us to work with anyone else. And because they were floating their company, they needed to secure their channel to market, which was us. So it's not that we were worth 14 million. We just happened to be worth it to them. Mm-hmm. Um, and the second time around, we were actually worth the money. We became a, we became a more valuable business. This is like 2011, 2012. So I developed intellectual property media and all of those sorts of things. So that's when I started to understand much more deeply how business actually works and how to build a business that becomes valuable and why some businesses are very valuable and others that seem similar are not. Um, And then from there, it was very easy. From there, I acquired a group of companies. Um, We were able to raise the money, turn those businesses around, develop them. I bought a a really significant IT business, um, a technology business, brought that in, fixed it, turned it around, got an offer, sold that. Um, So suddenly... I kind of saw the world through different lens. And you're not necessarily, you're not going, building these companies from scratch. They already exist. So I've started certain companies. So Mm -hmm. the two companies that at the moment that I started is Dent uh, Global, which is an entrepreneur accelerator and a group of services companies that we bought, and ScoreApp, which is a piece of technology that we developed for ourselves initially that became a very valuable standalone piece of tech and then we spun it out into its own company and then that company has become very valuable. So that technology company now has clients all over the world and it's um, uh, it's got AI, uh, it's an AI-enabled SaaS business um, focused on marketing technology. Uh, it uses AI to develop uh, uh, quizzes and surveys and scorecards and then creates dynamic marketing campaigns off the back using AI. Mm-hmm. And that business has become really valuable on its own, uh, like it's in the tens of millions uh, in, in valuation. And then the other one's developed its own life of its own, and it's got a group of services companies. Um, so some of it's starting and some of it's acquiring. Which is the one you're most proud of, the one you have the most emotional uh, attachment to? I'm a junkie for starting things. I love the early stages of business. I love that first eight people on a team um, – I love starting with the blank piece of paper and magicking something into existence at that early stage. I almost get bored when something's working too well. Mm. It's sick. It's a sick habit. But once it hits a certain point, so Dent, for example, has a life of its own. It's got an amazing global team um, and it just runs and people people get great results and all of this sort of stuff happens and, and it's an amazing business. But it's I, too easy. We need it, some drama. Yeah, I need, I need it to break need or something. A, we need a crisis. We yeah. need a recession. Score app is this insanely fast growth tech business. Um, we've been growing revenue from a pretty high base at 11% a month, 7 to a, seven to 11% a month this year. So it's been going boom, 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 boom. Um, 100 clients a day signing up to score app. It's wild. But it's starting to work too well. Is, that a, uh, is it a subscription model? That, yeah, subscription yeah. model. Um, it's, it's a SaaS software as a service model, which is a great model. Um, it's one of the best business models ever. It attracts a 10 times revenue valuation. Mm-hmm. Um, 
uh, at in good times and not so much in the, in in times like now. So, um, but when things are when the economy is pumping, it's like a, one of the best quality of earnings reports you can get. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I've got another AI startup just because I just because I have to do this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> so I've got BookMagic.ai, which launches in January, which is AI tools for authors, people who want to write a book. Um, this is the AI tools that doesn't write the book for you, but it structures mm. the book and prompts you to do certain steps to write books and uh yeah so we've created this tool that um so how many businesses is that there's nine businesses in the group and then so that and then i guess you've invested in a few i've been an angel right? investor in some really successful companies as well so i angel invested in copy.ai mm-hmm. um which was one of the very first ai um sort of uh partners with uh open ai mm-hmm. and yeah so there's 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 some other angel investments as yeah. well yeah Nice. So I want to get into some of the basics and fundamentals of starting a business because I know there's a lot of people who are listening to this, a lot of my audience, they will no doubt have uh, the dream and aspirations of starting Mm. their own. So I guess first of all, before they've done anything, at at the current point in time, they just have an idea. Mm -hmm. What would your recommendations be for them? First recommendation is have... Have 10 ideas. Okay. Rather than having an idea, have 10 ideas. Um, so go through the process of called ideation. So ideation is where you are trying to come up with a good list of ideas and see if you can evaluate them against other other ideas. So slow down for a minute and just sort of say, what other ideas might I have? And just go through that process of why do I like this one? What do I like about it? What do I not like about it? It just forces you to consider more options than just the first thing that hit you, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, when when uh, songwriters want to write a song, they write 10 songs and then they pick the song that emerges as the best song. So start with more ideas. You know, I had a, I had this mentor once who started multiple multi-billion dollar businesses. I said, how do you start a multi-billion dollar business? He says, you come up with 10 ideas for multiple multi-billion dollar businesses <laughs> and pick the best one. And I'm like, okay, fair enough. So start with multiple ideas. Keep a journal, a business journal. And just walk around and see if you can think about ideas, like what problem is there in the world? Like what are people frustrated by? What are people trying to do that they're struggling to do? Um, you know, and and see if you can start noticing things. Another great thing to do, which no one ever does, go talk to someone who owns a really big business and say, if you could buy a business, if I could wave a magic wand and you could buy like the business you wish you could buy, what do you wish you could buy? Like what's a business, what's a piece of technology that you wish existed that doesn't exist? And you know, what's, what's a business that you'd happily spend 20 million buying? What would that be for you? Uh, what would I buy? Uh, I'd buy a really big list. So if there was a business that had like a massive list, um, you know, the, a global list of business, small businesses, I'd, I'm actually having a meeting on Tuesday with a company that's got a 1.5 million list. And I'm, what of every company in the world well just an engaged audience an engaged list yeah email subscribers i'd buy that i'd buy any b2b service leads yeah or buying channel to market okay yeah i want to buy a channel um so that i've got all these products and services and ai i've I've got ai enabled SaaS businesses that scale if i can put them down a 1.5 million Mm. list then i'm gonna hit critical mass real fast um, I love B2B service businesses. So um, anything that is a really good, boring service business that serves entrepreneur community, I love those. Um, and I believe that all of those businesses at the moment have intellectual property that could be scaled into software. So I look for, you know, 
anything like that. I would like to buy anything that can become a B2B SaaS platform with AI plugged in. Um, because that's going to be that is going to be massive in the next five years. Mm-hmm. So in the next five years, there will be multi-billion-dollar funds that are just set up to buy B two B SaaS businesses that are AI enabled, um, and that's coming because we're right at the bottom of that trend, and it's going it's taking off super yeah. fast. So there'll be a land grab in in three years' time. They'll be buying those businesses for ten to twenty times revenue. Mm. Okay, so going back to the ideas. Mm-hmm. So you come up with you, a bunch of ideas. Yeah. Yep. So what you then want to do is is really cheap tests, really cheap tests. There's a there's a big concept. I'll try and think about it as fast as possible. But there's something called a bell curve. A bell curve is called a standard distribution of results, right? So if you take something like how much do doctors earn, there's going to be a bell curve. There'll be a few doctors who earn a lot and a few doctors who don't earn quite as much, and most doctors earn pretty much the clump, and it's a very narrow little bell curve. It's like training volume as well. Like there's an optimal level of volume to achieve the best results. There you if go. There's so, not enough. So those things are called standard distributions. They're bell curves. Oh. There's this other thing called a power curve, power law, right? That is the. It's also called the 80-20 or the 90-10, and that is where 90% of the results go to 10% of the players, um, and that's a power curve. And that means that there's a small chance of success, but if you do succeed, you succeed big. Mm-hmm. Now, that's not doctors, right? So that's entrepreneurs. Entrepreneurs are on a power law. They're on a power curve that you hear about the top 5, 10, or maybe 1% of them that earn massive amounts of money, but there's plenty of entrepreneurs who earn nothing. Mm-hmm. That's unlike doctors. There's very few doctors who earn nothing. So if you're on a bell curve, which most employees are, most people who work in a job if you're on a bell curve, the goal is to stick it out and try and become marginally more successful year after year, right? Get further up the bell curve. Once you go onto a power law, power curve, your job is to conduct fast and cheap experiments to see if you can strike it big. That's what you're trying to do. So what you need to do is find out fast if you're going to succeed or fail. So I'll give you an example. Let's say I've got a few ideas. I've got 10 ideas and I pick three. I'm going to not launch a business. I want to launch a waiting list. Now, this is totally wrong. Most most people would never do this. So I'm not going to launch the business at all. I'm just going to set up a waiting list. And the waiting list is going to essentially say, next year, we're going to be launching this. Or in the next few months, we're going to be launching this. It's going to have these key features. It's for this type of person. Um, if you're interested, join the waiting list, register your interest, and we will add you to the list of people who get all the early information as it becomes available. So Let's, you mentioned uh, Elon Musk did that with Cybertruck. Elon Musk did this yeah. with Cybertruck. They're only delivering Cybertrucks now. He did this three years ago, and he basically put one – it wasn't even a proper Cybertruck. I think it was a, like a normal um, Tesla Model Y or something made to look like a Cybertruck. So they put this one on stage, and they say, we're going to launch this cool thing called Cybertruck, and if you want to join the waiting list, join the waiting list, and it's $100 to join the waiting list. They had a million people join the waiting list. And it wasn't to collect the $100. It was so that they could go to JP Morgan and say, we've got a million people on the waiting list. We think at least 60,000, 70,000 people will actually go ahead and buy a truck. Um, can we borrow the money that we need in order to build the factory? Because why would anyone lend someone the money to build a factory for a product that's untested? But mm-hmm. once you've got the waiting list, boom. So I did this recently. I had this idea of author tools, AI-driven author tools. And actually, sorry, I didn't have the idea. One of my team had the idea, right? So one of my team comes to me and they're like, 
uh, AI tools for authors. And we start talking about it. I think, let's test it, right? Let's see how the market responds. We set up this landing page and it's uh, bookmagic.ai. It's going to be AI-driven tools for authors. If you're interested in writing a book and having AI support the process, um, register your details. And I said, if we can get 150 people to join the waiting list, then we'll explore it further. I think it was 1,100 people joined the waiting list from a single post. This is on your social media? I just put it on my LinkedIn. LinkedIn. So I just stuck it on my LinkedIn. And when they joined the waiting list, they had to answer six questions. And it was like, how much would you pay for the service? What are you trying to achieve? What stopped you in the past? What's your biggest fear with this service? So we asked these key questions. And then as soon as we had 1,100 people fill it in, we've got all this data, including how much the average person is willing to pay. So then I go and I, oh, one, one of the questions was, would you like to see the business plan uh, as a potential angel investor, right? So we stuck that on there and something like 200 out of the 1100 said, yeah, we'll see the business plan. So I host an, a Zoom call saying, uh, here's the business plan and we show people based upon the data, this is how much people are willing to pay. We've got 1100 on the waiting list off one post. We think we can get to 4,000 people who pay 39 a month pretty quickly so now we've got, uh, you know, this is what, this is how the business is going to shape up. So we did a cash flow forecast and a, and a business plan. And then we said, uh, in the UK, you can raise this first £250,000 called SEIS funding. So we said, we're going to do an SEIS round, quarter of a million. Uh, if, you'd, if you'd be interested, let us know how much you want to put in. So off the back of that one Zoom call, we got £580,000 worth of people saying, I want to join. So we then had to tell everyone, no, you've got to put in less than half a year. Your, your allocation. Um, so then we, within a few weeks, we had no lines of code. We had no platform. We had no business. We didn't have a company set up. We didn't have a bank account. And we had expressions for 580,000 because we had ro- launched a waiting list and we had the data and we could extrapolate forward and then boom. So on day one, all the investors pile in. There's a quarter of a million in the bank and now we're ready to launch business. They're almost telling you what, that product should be in a sense they're, they're, yeah. because you maybe you had an idea that oh okay I, this is what the, i think the product or service should be and then you get everyone to fill in the questionnaire and then maybe you figure out actually this is not the problem people are having this is yeah the problem well, people classic are example is that i thought it was, should be about 20 bucks a month mm-hmm. and the market told us 40 bucks a month okay so i would have underpriced it by half I would have made I would have made the journey twice as hard as it needed to be if I hadn't asked the question. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you from that process you then know what that the product so should you be. Start with a waiting so he, there's four ways to test an idea. These are my favorite four. A waiting list is my, is a, is a really good one. So mm-hmm. setting up a waiting list. Uh, second one is a um discussion group. So if I let's say there's a fitness trainer who's thinking about training people for triathlons. You set up a triathlon discussion group mm-hmm. and you say, I'm running a WhatsApp group for people who want to run their first triathlon or, or compete in their first triathlon. Uh, if you've never been in a triathlon before and you want to discuss all the things in the lead up to what you need to do, join my WhatsApp discussion group. Once again, you get 30, 40, 50 people in there. Okay, that's a good sign. You get 100 people in there. That's a great sign. So you're starting to just validate. It doesn't cost you anything to set up a WhatsApp group. Um, if they're joining and they're discussing, you start looking at what questions are they asking. What what You ask them, what's your biggest fear? How much do you want to pay to compete really well in your triathlon? 
what equipment do you need? What support do you need? What, what are you doing with your diet? What help do you need with that? Um, you run little polls inside the WhatsApp group, get them to respond. Now you're actually fine-tuning your idea without spending any money. Mm-hmm. So that would be number two. Number three would be a Zoom event uh, where you like a Zoom account is free or almost free. Um, and you just put on a 30 or 40-minute discussion where you present some research or you present um, an idea or you present uh, some slides about what it is you're, you're doing, ask people to ask questions, right? have have that Zoom call. If you can get 30 or 40 people on a Zoom call, that's great. And the fourth one would be something called a scorecard or an assessment, and that is where people fill in an online assessment. So with that same example, uh, are you ready to run a, a triathlon Answer 14 questions to find out. Get a readiness score. So this is where people give you data about their readiness and you might discover that your market is like a like base level or you might discover they're actually pretty good and they they want to be great but you know they're, they're, you, you're starting to really understand where the market is. Often it's not where you imagine. Mm-hmm. You might think that they need help with diet and actually they need help picking shoes. Real quick, guys, I just want to share with you something which I spent the end of 2023 putting together for you. You see, in life, if you are unhappy with something, you need to change it. That is one of the core philosophies that has driven me, my businesses, and my fitness over the past 10 years. In recent years, I've been asked frequently how I've managed to go from being an average personal trainer, working all day, every day in a gym in the north of England, to the position that I am in today. That is why I decided to create the digital playbook. This is a step-by-step blueprint for anybody who finds themselves in the same position that I did years ago, wondering to myself, how can I make money online? Can I really make a full-time income from creating content about the things that I actually like? How can I travel the world, work from my laptop, and at the same time still afford to live a great lifestyle? It's essentially a playbook on how I built multi-million pound businesses off the back of creating content online. If you want to check it out, head over to thedigitalplaybook.net and you can book in a call with my team to find out more. Let's get back to the episode. Yeah. So I would imagine these people who are starting, they probably don't have a huge amount of money to build something or invest in something. Mm -hmm. So would it be best for them to start some sort of a digital-based service or product or maybe a digital product might actually take a bit of time and investment. Uh, I'm a big believer that you should start with a small group of clients who pay a lot. Mm -hmm. That's like high ticket. Yeah. Right. Because, um, big businesses are able to do volumes of sales. The bigger the business, the higher the volume they can do. Mm -hmm. Small businesses do low volume, high value. So if you imagine Coca-Cola is low value, high volume, and McKinsey Consulting is high value, low volume. Mm-hmm. So small businesses are much better at doing high value, low volume. So for example, what most people do when they think of starting a business is they always think about the businesses they've seen their whole life, which are typically big businesses that do high volumes. Yeah, I'll start a clothing brand. Yeah, I'll start a clothing brand. Yeah. I'll start an app. Um, I'll start a um, you know cupcake business or something where the, the average sale is only a few pounds Mm -hmm. the simple maths is like how much do i need to sell each month in order to afford an assistant so let's say an assistant is three grand 
and you're selling three pound things or three dollar things, well, okay, you're going to make a thousand sales every month yeah. just to pay for an assistant. But if you have one client paying 1500 now you need two clients to mm -hmm. afford an assistant. You get four clients, you can afford two assistants. So you don't have to do a lot of sales in order to get to a critical mass where the business starts to starts to work. When I launched ScoreApp, we knew it was going to be a high-tech business. I didn't start with high-tech. I signed up eight clients who paid about eight grand each. Right Now, bear in mind, we, we now have free accounts and $29 a month accounts, £29 a month accounts. You, you, were, you were solving a problem for them. But we started with, we signed up some bigger businesses where we said, we will deliver this as a service and we will custom build something for you and we'll work with you. The initial reason that I did that is I wanted to be hands-on with clients. So I don't want to be at arm's, arm's length. I sat down with people side by side and we wrote their words together on, on the laptop. I asked them questions. I was paying a lot of attention to what questions they ask and what mm -hmm. they're struggling with, what they're, what they're unsure about. So I go through this whole process of like being super hands-on with a small number of clients. And then once we were super hands-on with that number of clients, we could see what they were doing. We could then extrapolate that forward. And then with that business, I actually raised a little bit of seed money as well. I like to do this anyway. So one of the things, even if you've got loads of money, having angel investors is not just about the money. It's also about validating the idea because when you present to smart people, they give you good feedback. It's about validating your valuation. So if you can raise money at a three million pound valuation and you get 20 smart people who put in a bit of money at that valuation, you've got a good starting point on value. Um, it's about having a little bit of money, but it, you know, but also the accountability of that. And then it's um, also about having 20 people who are out there who want to see it succeed. Mm -hmm. So when I sign people up as angel investors, I'm looking for people who can do more than just money. So they might be able to make introduction or they might work within certain circles and they, you know, they, they, they can open the business up to, to a new channel. Mm -hmm. So there are many good reasons to start with talking to angel investors anyway. Um, but don't talk to them too soon. You want to have some data from your waiting list. You want to have spoken to real life customers and potentially signed up 20, 30, 40, 50 grand worth of customers, and then think about talking to angels. So what would you do if you were a personal trainer? like I was back in the day, mm -hmm. you maybe been doing it for a couple of years. You were like, right, okay, I'm fed up of doing this. You know, my, it's very, my money is very dependent upon how much time I'm putting in. Mm. Uh, it's very demanding. Uh, I want to move away from this, make more money, but not be too stuck into dealing with people one-on-one. -on -one. First thing I would do assuming that people are not all going to be able to go out and build a massive following, right? Because obvi the obvious answer when people look at you is they're like, oh, well, I need to start a massive YouTube channel and I need to start a massive Instagram and all this sort of stuff. Let's, let's go a completely different route. I would try and package up a group of products and services that deliver an outcome. So let's say the outcome is weight loss. Mm -hmm. Well, weight loss is going to be about getting in the gym, but it's also about diet. Maybe it's meal prep. Maybe it's protein shakes, yeah, supplements. supplements. Maybe it's a whole thing. I'm going to put that into a beautiful brochure and I'm going to try and create a packaged offering. I'm going to look at doing a gold, silver, and a bronze version. And I'm going to say in the bronze version, you get these five things. In the silver version, you get these seven things. In the gold version, you get these nine things. And... This is like for people who are, you know, 
managers, this is for executives, this is for entrepreneurs. So, so you're targeting people who have money. Yeah. yeah. So I'd go after people who have money, but I'd sell them a package based on what they want. See, the problem, here's the biggest problem. Every single person went through 12 years of schooling to learn how to sell their own labor. That's mm -hmm. the whole purpose of school. It's component labor. And what the whole default assumption at everyone in school is that you're going to get out of school and at some point your job is to sell your labor and you've got a skill set and please plug my skills into your life, your business, your thing. So that component labor model no longer works. That That is completely broken. When you are an entrepreneur, you're not selling your skills or your time. You're selling an outcome. You're actually identifying a problem that people have and saying, ah, okay, that is a hand-shaped problem. I'm going to come up with a really nice hand-shaped solution to that. Now, normally selling labor is not a solution. It's like a component. It's just one thing. Mm -hmm. So what are personal trainers actually doing? They're actually only selling a component of what people want. So they're leaving it up. In most cases, they're leaving it up to the customer to get what they want. What the customer wants is to look good, feel good, lose lose weight. They want people saying, hey, you've lost weight. You're looking really good. There's multiple things that you can do to get that outcome. There are all sorts of uh, interventions that uh, that don't include being in the gym, doing doing that. Um, and also, even if we were talking about just being in the gym, there's cardio, there's weights, there's you know different. There's being outdoors. So imagine in the package, you say, well, part of what we're going to do is boxing training, and that's going to be with my friend who's an amazing boxing trainer. And part of what we're going to do is rowing, and you're going to go out on on a rowing ex experience with my friend who does the rowing experience, part of what you do is going to be, um, we're going to get your teeth whitened and that's going to be with my friend, the dentist. Um, so, so like instead of being the coach, you are supplying the coaches. You're moving into what, into the entrepreneur seat. Mm -hmm. And in the entrepreneur seat, you orchestrate the solution. Mm -hmm. So think about in an orchestra, all the musicians are playing an instrument, but the most powerful person is the person conducting. Yeah. Right. They don't have an instrument. They're just getting other people to play. Mm -hmm. So what the entrepreneur does is the entrepreneur thinks of very deeply about what the customer is trying to do, and then they organize stuff around that to make sure they can solve that problem. Mm -hmm. Here's a crazy thing to consider. When you think about buying a Porsche 911, you think about that as one thing, right? So you, you as a customer go, oh, that's a Porsche 911. Here's the Porsche 911 brochure. And uh, and I just bought one thing called a Porsche 911 and it had one price. Behind the scenes, there's two and a half thousand suppliers. So the radio and the speakers and the glass and the shock absorbers and you know all of those things, they all came from different suppliers. There's two and a half thousand suppliers that all coordinated behind the scenes. And then the clever people at Porsche made it look like one thing mm. and they made a brochure and they gave it a name, the 911, and now you're sitting there going, oh, I'm buying this one thing, but it's a package of things. Um, and it's not only that, it's finance and it's insurance and it's warranty, all these intangible things as well. And it's being part of the Porsche club, perhaps. Uh, so there's all this stuff that gets packaged together when you buy one thing, but it's not one thing. It's thousands of things that look like one thing. So the entrepreneur is the person who holds the one thing in their mind and then organizes the dozens mm -hmm. of things behind the scenes and makes it look like one thing and then sells it to the customer. What would you do if you were a very talented either videographer, editor, or photographer? 
And again, your money is very dependent upon you physically being there, videoing, editing, or taking pictures. How would they look to create a business out of that and stop being so dependent upon? So you got to remember person? that life is a choose your own adventure. Mm -hmm. So you're only that because you chose it at one point. You can choose to be something different at any time. Mm -hmm. So why are you a video editor? Because at one point you said, oh, I can edit videos and I'll be an a video editor, right? Mm -hmm. But at any point you can wake up tomorrow and say, oh, I'm going to be a angel investor or I'm going to be a entrepreneur who builds media channels mm -hmm. or I'm going to be um, someone who's looking for a job. Like you, you get to choose any, on any given day, you get to choose what you do. Mm -hmm. So don't fall into this identity and go, oh, but I'm a video editor. Okay, well, video editors get paid a certain amount and have a certain lifestyle. You might have to choose something else to be. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and we'll have to get the video editor for this to block their ears right now, right? But <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but here's, here's the thing. Let's approach it more like an entrepreneur who's got video editing skills. So they're sitting there saying, well, what does the customer want? They want to build a channel. They want to build an asset. They want to build a, you know, a, cer a certain number of um, subscribers. So if I'm an entrepreneur, I'm going to talk to someone who aspires to be like Mike, and I, I go, what do you want? Oh, I want to build a channel, and I want to do a daily upload, and I want to have a, uh, you know, shorts, and I want to have long-form content, and I want to have sponsors and all this sort of stuff. And I go, okay, cool. What if I could put all of that together in a package for you? Mm -hmm. Like what if we could do something for like, I don't know, five grand a month, and it includes this, 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 and this, but it also includes like helping you with the sponsorship, finding and sourcing guests, um, all of that. Now, most people go, but I don't know how to do all that stuff. Well, that's the point of being the entrepreneur. The point of being the entrepreneur is that you put down the instruments and just play the conductor role. So it's important to say, I have zero skills, like none. Mm -hmm. I don't know, I can't code, I can't design. No, no websites like like the, I don't have a skill there's nothing that I have as an actual like formal training or skill I have no qualifications uh, I'm really good at listening to customers finding what they want and then go and talking to people who could help me orchestrate that putting it into a document and selling it mm -hmm. so let's get into the basics of why people buy mm -hmm. what is it that makes people want to buy yeah so you need that's a great that's what entrepreneurs really focus on. Mm -hmm. Entrepreneurs love that question. So what they're looking at is trying to get inside the customer's head and find out what's going on inside there. And here's the framework I think about. I think about current reality, desired reality, and obstacles. So the first thing I'm looking at, let's say fitness example. What is your current fitness? What is your desired fitness? And what's been your obstacles to fitness? So that's the first thing, because that's the customer's reality. Mm -hmm. If it was easy, they would have already solved it. Right, so they, the customer feels this tension. They feel this frustration. For the customer, their life feels like a wrestling match, right? So let's take someone who struggles with fitness, uh, me more so than you, right? Yeah. So I'm gonna sit there and go, well, why aren't I as fit as Mike? Well, you know, I really struggle with portions, right? Portion control is a big thing for me. I feel like I, you know, once I start eating, I'm eating too much and I'm out of control, right? So that's been an issue. And I struggle with managing my time with little kids and. You know, I struggle with this and I struggle with that. So for me, fitness feels like a struggle. It feels like a wrestling match. It feels like I'm trying to overcome things that are stacked against me. So as the entrepreneur, you want to get inside the head and understand what is the wrestling match. 
Now, for you, you might automatically know all the solutions, but you need to slow down and say, well, what is the customer thinking about? How do they describe this? What words do they use to describe their current reality? What words do they use to describe the desire? What do they describe about their obstacles and criteria? And then what we want to do is we want to shine a spotlight on it and say, okay, given that that's how you perceive your situation, let me share with you some insights that you may not be familiar with. Let me share with you some ideas, some research. Um, Let me show you some examples of people who were like you that solved that problem, right? So now I'm going to illuminate that the solution is possible through insights. Then I'm going to say to the customer, here's a methodology. Here's a method for solving this. Here's a step-by-step-by-step method. We're going to call that your, your path of least resistance. And then finally, here's a package you can buy. Mm-hmm. So insights, method, package. And now we're going to say, how does that fit? How does that feel? So now that you've seen these insights, this methodology, and this package to buy, what do you like about it? What do you not like about it? Hmm, okay, I didn't realize it would involve that. I'd never thought about it like that. Uh, maybe I want it to be a bit more like this, or why couldn't it be, you know, why have you said that I have to do early mornings? Do I have to do early mornings? Could it be late at night? So they're, they're going to start kind of interacting with it. Mm-hmm. You're going to be flexible on some stuff and you're not going to be flexible on other things. You're going to say, well, actually that doesn't work. And we know that doesn't work. So we're going to be hard on that. Um, so when you're going through this entrepreneurial process, that's really, that's a big part of the building block. That's like discovering the DNA of value to go through that process. You, you mentioned before there needs to be some element of logic, emotion, and urgency. Mm-hmm. At the final point when a customer buys something, it's because three things align. They logically feel that this logically makes sense. You've logically addressed all of my concerns. And logic normally looks like a spreadsheet. So it's like, well, here's the spreadsheet that explains where you are, where you want to be, your obstacles, and why this solves that. Mm-hmm. So, okay, logically. And then the emotion is just the feelings. I want it. I, I desire it. This this fits my inner identity. Um, I trust it. And then the urgency is I should do this now rather than later. So a great example of this is a Rolex watch. A Rolex watch ticks all the buttons, right? So I don't know if you've ever bought one, but you know people who've got Rolexes and the way Rolex does their sale is that if you go into a Rolex uh, boutique, they the first sale is to get you on the waiting list. So they, you can't buy one, you have to join the waiting list. So that when they talk to you, they get they find out what you like and then they say, you can't have it. You gotta be on the waiting list. And then the next thing is they leave you on the waiting list for like six months, but they send you some information, nine months, send you some information. They let you know that that they're still aware that you exist. And then one day they ring you up and they say, "Um, we've got one that you want, but you can only have it for the next two or three days. Mm -hmm. Right Now, what that does is the logic of a Rolex is that it holds its value. So you've discovered that these things hold their value. If you spend 10 grand, it will be worth at least 10 grand in the future. Maybe it might be worth 11 or 12. So it's like, oh, I'm buying something that holds its value. So logically, it makes sense. Emotionally, I've been waiting for this. I've been wanting this thing. It makes me look cool and high status and amazing. And then urgency, I can only get it in the next three days or else I miss out. Mm. So Rolex are the masters of logic, emotion, urgency. All entrepreneurs have to figure out how to do this. So you can't, it's not enough to just say, oh, the app is available in the app store. No tension, no desire, no build up, nothing, right? It's just like, 
And it's not enough to just say, oh, logically, you should have this thing. Well, I get that's, that's an issue I have with my app. It's, it's available all the time. And the, I think one of the problems is as well is because it's, it's not high ticket, it's quite low ticket. Mm. So, you know, for something which is 10, 15 pound a month, it's first of all, you need a lot of followers mm-hmm. in the first place. You need to get a lot of people signing up to actually make decent money. But yeah. second of all, which one thing which I've noticed when it comes to fitness is the less money that they invest into it, the Unless less it serious works, yeah. they take it. Yeah. So it's it's kind of frustrating because I have all these people on the app, but they they're not taking it as seriously as they should do, which means that their transformations are not as impressive as mm-hmm. they could be. Yeah. Like the best transformations I have had with my clients in the past have been the ones where they've had to pay a lot of money and to they, work they with commit. me one-to-one. Yeah. And they yeah. commit. Yeah. And and that's part of behavioral change, right? Mm. The behavioral change, it's like almost a self-fulfilling prophecy because there's the pain, but 10 pounds a month or $10 a month isn't enough pain to, mm. to open the app another time. Mm. Um, and then they churn, right? Yeah. They cancel. And they're like, oh, didn't work for me. It's like, dude, you never, I can see, you never open the app. Yeah. Um, so what advice would you give to me to... I mean, of course, make get more customers, but for them to take it more seriously, like. Well, here's what here's what I'd look at. I'd look at campaigns mm-hmm. rather than just making it always available. I would have um, at least four campaigns a year that are special campaigns, where if you buy within this period, you get a ticket to this thing, or you get this bonus, um, or you get to have certain experience that very rarely you know happens. Mm-hmm. And there's a window that you can you can do, and then if you buy within that window then you get the extra thing, right? So that would be a campaign. Um, or you could have certain workouts or lessons or meal plans that are going to appear for a short space of time and then they're going to disappear. Um, so there's there's those kind of things. That's interesting. Um, so a little bit more campaign gamification mm-hmm. um, type thing you could do. You also want to have that product exist within a wider ecosystem. So products and services don't make money. Product and service ecosystems make money. So let's take like Gordon Ramsay. Gordon Ramsay's got books. He's got online content. He's got restaurants. He's got um, an entire like suite of things. What's making the money? Well, it's not one thing. It's the combination of all the things. So let's say you, you where, where you will be making the most amount of money is when you have a really great ecosystem and some people who where it's right for them will go onto the app. Some people will go and work with a licensed trainer who has a license to work with your you and your clients. Some people will um, get equipment. Some people will get you know uh, clothing, right? So then it'll actually be this ecosystem and suddenly people adopt the ecosystem and that's where huge amounts of profit comes out because now there's this kind of like ecosystem of products and services. Um, Something like 90% of the profit in the smartphone industry exists for Apple. Apple has like dominated the profit. They make, even though Samsung does more than half the sales, more sales than Apple, Apple makes way more profit. And the reason for that is they have this whole ecosystem that is very curated. Um, oh, because if you buy one thing, then you buy the other thing. You buy one thing, like, you buy the other thing, yeah. you subscribe to this thing, that thing. Um, it's important to know that here's, here's a really uncomfortable reality. Businesses don't become profitable because they add a lot of value. They become valuable because of the demand and supply tension. So let me explain. A business that adds a lot of value is an airline, 
if you push a button and that all airlines suddenly don't exist, everyone would go nuts, right? Because it's such an underpinning of the economy, but they don't make any profit. They're 5% profit margins at the best of times. So adding a lot of value, if if airlines, we, we all agree that airlines add a lot of value, but they're not profitable. So if adding value was the key to making profit, airlines would be wildly profitable. Rolex doesn't add a lot of value. If you push a button and say there's no more Rolex watches, most people wouldn't care. Even people who own Rolexes would be like, oh, well, you know, that was fun while it lasted, but doesn't really change my life Mm -hmm. in any great way. But they make 75% margins or 70% margins. So business isn't fair. Profit's not fair. All of these things are not fair. The way, the reason something makes money is because of the imbalance of demand and supply tension. Glastonbury makes money because 700,000 people pre-register for a ticket and only 130,000 people can buy one in 30 minutes. Um, Do you know why Emirates has been so successful? Because it's it's part of an ecosystem. And the the reason Emirates is so successful is it's part of the Dubai ecosystem. And what's what's really going on is that Dubai is playing a strategic game of chess and, and Emirates is part of a wider ecosystem where they're, they're part of the team that's winning, um, as opposed to most countries that treat their airlines like a thing to be regulated, mm. um, not as a thing that brings people into the region to spend a bunch of money. So it, they're playing an ecosystem game. But even still, it's... Here's, a, here's an interesting idea. Imagine an ice cream truck rocks up on a hot day and all they do is they just open up the door and people can go get an ice cream when they want to get an ice cream, right? So people come up and they come up one at a time and the vendor doesn't know how many people are actually going to buy an ice cream. So when people come up and say, can I get a discount? They go, okay, I'll give you a discount. Imagine instead they play a little game. So they drive the ice cream truck and they leave it closed and they walk around and they say, we're about to open the ice cream truck. And if you want an ice cream, we're probably going to run out. So you might want to line up. Now everyone can see everyone lining up. There's 30, 40 people in the line. And then they open up the ice cream truck and everyone goes, oh, can I get a discount? It's like, well, look behind you. There's 30 people lined up. Mm -hmm. And everyone's, oh, okay, fair enough. I won't get a discount. So now they've got profit margins. So it's the exact same business on the exact same day in the exact same scenario, but they play a little game. It's like Louis Vuitton. They always make people queue. They make you queue, right? Oh, someone's waiting. I think they want a handbag. Okay, all right. Let them in just for five minutes. Yeah. Right? They do the whole game of of you know you got to get past security to have yeah. a, to have a look at <laughs> to have a look at a Louis Louis Vuitton handbag. But it's silly, but it works. That's yeah. so you got to play some of these. You got to play some campaign games, right? So you got to campaign your products and services properly. So that's to be an element of scarcity. It's got to be tension, tension between demand and supply tension. Right, anything that's too freely available loses its value. Like water, we can't live without it, but because it's available, okay, yeah, well, you know, I'm not worried about it. If if suddenly if if there was a news report that said water was like scarce, mm-hmm. we would freak out. Right. So it's it's the demand and supply tension. Now, this is the deeper issue that most people who want to start a business, they always just think about the supply side. Mm-hmm. Right. And they think about how can I supply a really good product or service? How can I do all the supply stuff? If all you do is ramp up supply without corresponding demand, you will lose money. You have to get good at ramping up demand first and then slowly ramping supply. There's got to always be this demand and supply tension or else the thing won't work. So let's assume something is working with the thing that you've started. 
how much of the money which you're making or the profit you're making would you reinvest into the company as much as you can you know if you well you know you 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 have to work out your vision there's two there's essentially a couple of visions that people have one is a lifestyle business mm-hmm. so the vision for that is that i won't work very much and i will just have a business that pays me as much as i possibly can with as small amount of work so if that's the vision and you're trying to build a lifestyle orientated business then at that point you're just trying to maintain that juggling act of how much can i pull out without the business suffering i would imagine that's probably more popular it's very popular today because it's possible so for the first time in history this is a thing if you were to think over all of human history most people couldn't have a lifestyle business it's you know you're butcher baker candlestick maker in the local area there's a local population that you know you're not going to make a lot it's this moment in time that we're having right at this moment where you can build a following you can have clients all over the world you can it's relatively easy to create software and sell it to a global audience it's relatively easy to create a product and have it whizzing around the world and being shipped to places it's relatively easy to collect payments from people wherever they are we're going through this massive global transformation historically all of that's impossible so for the first time ever people are going oh wait a second i could live and work from anywhere i could you know have a good lifestyle so it makes sense that people are doing that but in many cases most people are missing the bigger opportunity yes this is possible but there's also the possibility of creating something really big and meaningful while this gate is open well i think i was i was very much about the lifestyle business particularly in my late 20s even probably the past few years but it's it's definitely shifted now mm. i'm thinking okay let's let's get onto something serious this is the thing i i think you know for someone like yourself you know why wouldn't you build something 100 million plus yeah what what's your thoughts on uh, the supplement industry do you think it's a good business model even though you could you look at it you think it was heavily saturated it really comes down to execution so there are plenty of really saturated businesses that succeed mm-hmm. um but it's how they build the demand and supply tension if there was something there there will be in the next few years there'll be a supplement or a thing that just booms and pops and makes a ton of money because of the way that they execute it and they will do things like launch waiting lists they will have they'll run out they'll have scarce supply you'll want it but you can't get it um and they'll have some sort of new take on things um also there are some innovations um from what i hear where there's actually genuinely new um performance benefits like mm. as in but i think it's more pharmaceutical but there's certain things that people are people are going to want but i mean people are always going to want you know supplements yeah. there, there's other things that you can do in any saturated business in a saturated business you can buy up 10 of these companies and achieve scale um and then they can all kind of work together and you can integrate them into one brand or you can integrate them into one mm. sort of shared back office and you strangely you can actually build a multi multi million dollar business without changing the business landscape at all just by restructuring the ownership of 10 companies um so like there'll be people who roll up it's called rolling up the industry there'll be people who come in and roll up the supplement industry what do you think i think i mean i'm sure in the next couple of years there probably will be something that will be new to the market which is just you know maybe come up in a lab and it's actually a really good supplement or product and it just does really well but i think a lot of it especially these days is to do with the marketing and sometimes how much money people are willing to throw at it yeah um 
it's weird. Like, like my past experience, I've obviously worked with a couple of uh, supplement companies. I think it was My Protein, Bulk, EHP Labs. I'm at a point now where I'm thinking, hmm, do I want to potentially set up my own supplement company? It could. I'm sure it could work because I have a as a, as a you know my core audience who would probably buy anything which I release. They would no mm. doubt get involved. But do I really want to get too heavily involved into trying to set up a new company from scratch? Like it sounds like a complete in a headache. very saturated industry. Okay, now I understand why you asked the question. So here's here's some intri- weird advice for you, right? If you let in the story Superman, mm-hmm. Superman's from this planet, and on his planet he doesn't have any superpowers. But when he comes to Earth, he has all these superpowers. He can fly and all this sort of stuff. So when you kind of you inside the fitness industry don't have huge superpowers because every brand has a fitness person, right? So if I go to most fitness products and fitness brands. There's a dude with his shirt off and he's got a six pack and he looks ripped, you know, and you fit the kind of model of that, but you're not radically different to anything that anyone else is going to see in that space. So you don't have superpowers in that industry. Mm -hmm. You think you do because you're connected to it, but actually it's, it's in that industry. It's quite common to see someone who's really well built, same as fashion and all of those kind of things. If we look at people who break the mold and take their superpower into a different planet, Ryan Reynolds, he goes from Hollywood actor to to gin, aviation gin, sells it for three hundred million because he's like doing the Hollywood actor with a alcohol brand, and then he goes to Mint Mobile and sells mobile phones because no Hollywood actors are doing deals actively with the mobile phones, and then he goes to a random sporting team in Wales mm-hmm. and reinvents them. So he takes this superpower that he has and he starts using it with all these random different businesses and they all go work, get worth hundreds of millions. I think he bought Wrexham for a couple of million and it's now worth probably 70, 80, 90 million. Mm-hmm. Um, he's now doing a payment gateway in Canada and he's using his superstar power and his ability to capture an audience and attention and do advertising all of that, he's now doing that with this particular company and they'll be worth billions. So this guy's going to end up as a billionaire if he isn't already. Mm-hmm. But had he just done the Hollywood thing of like, you know, doing what all the other Hollywood guys do, he'd probably be earning millions per year with these endorsements, and but not billions. Same as Richard Branson. Branson's in the music industry and he understands how music industry works and how cool it is and how like Rolling Stones and all these guys that he's kicking around with and having a great time. And then he takes that into airlines and he says we're going to do rockstar industry airlines and now we're going to do the rockstar credit cards and now we're going to do virgin uh mobile phones and we're going to do all and and telecommunications so he takes his music industry vibe and puts it into boring industries and makes billions so imagine in a different world where you say no forget about all the fitness stuff forget about all the fashion stuff all the stuff where people would pigeonhole you Mm -hmm. And say, I'm going to go into B2B SaaS products. I'm going to go into AI. I'm going to go into these places where they've never seen someone like you, right? You 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 fly in and you're Superman in those environments. They're like, oh, we've we've never come across someone who's got a million followers and who, mm. you know, takes their shirt off. Suddenly, <laughs> <laughs> suddenly you've got superpowers, and that will have a much bigger impact. You will know things that they've never heard of. Your advice, your knowledge your approach will be so radical 
that that will blow them up. Mm-hmm. And they and th- these are businesses that easily become worth a hundred million plus. So I don't think if I, if I was advising you, I'd say try and break the mold. Try and look at look at something on a different planet. Would you consider me a KPI? Key person of influence in your industry, of course you are. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So always so a key person. So the key person of influence is the name that always comes up in conversation. It's the person within an industry. So here's what actually genuinely happened. I'm here in Dubai, and I'm like talking about business and entrepreneurship, and um, and like you know what's going on in the world at the moment. And people are like, oh, you should talk to Mike. Your your name comes up three or four different people, and they're like, oh, he's the guy here in in Dubai, and he's the guy who everyone knows, and. So, you know, you're, so the name comes up in conversation. People know what you're about. They like you. They trust you. They want to go on a journey with you. All of those things make a person a key person of influence. All industries revolve around key people of influence. And your job is really to be, to become one. Mm-hmm. So in any given industry, you've got worker bees who just do the work. You've got newbies who are entering for the first time. And then you've got key people of influence who there's probably a few dozen of them and these are the people who everything goes through. They like nothing happens unless they're involved. So you either have to know one or be one uh, in order to get something to happen. And when you launch something, if you've got a key person of influence involved, it just flies. My first business, I just happened to get a good key person of influence involved from day one. I paid 5% of revenue to them plus speaking fees. And then boom, our business just took off because the doors open, everything goes. So. I mean, can a company be successful without KPIs? It's very hard these days. Mm-hmm. Just, just doesn't get cut, cut through. So Steve Jobs launches Apple, goes up against IBM. IBM's a massive faceless company, and Steve Jobs goes, boom, disrupts them. And then he passes away. Tim Cook takes over. Tim Cook's this quiet little introvert, COO, operator, and he has to play the role of Steve Jobs and get on stage and learn how to talk to camera and get out of his comfort zone. But today, Tim Cook has twice as many social media followers as Apple. Apple's the biggest brand in the world, 50-year history. Twice as many people follow Tim Cook. People love people. Mm. And if if Tim Cook hadn't have stepped into that role, it's very likely that Apple would have faded. Um, it's like what, I guess, everything Elon touches, people believe in those businesses because... Elon is behind it. If Elon wasn't behind it, there'd be... Very quickly, guys, I just want to ask you a quick question. Are you taking supplements? And if you are, do you have any idea if you're taking the right supplements in the right amounts? You see, the more that I discovered about the importance of micronutrient supplementation and the adverse health effects of micronutrient deficiencies, I would constantly ask myself the same thing. I would go into supplement stores, load up on bottles of micronutrients and pop pills daily without really knowing if they were doing me any good or not. That's when I decided to try out Bionic. Since 2021, I've been getting my blood work done with them every three to four months. And once the blood test has been analyzed, they would put together a customized micronutrient formula tailored specifically for me. And this would last me for three to four months until I got my blood work done again. And since then, I've honestly never looked back. If you are also serious about performing at your best, preventing development of diseases and maximizing your overall health and well-being, I highly recommend you give it a try. And they've recently introduced Bionic Go, which is a fraction of the price where all you need to do is just fill in a questionnaire online without the need of a blood test. If you want to find out more or give them a try, head over to bionic.com, but you can use my exclusive referral code BQ 
Mike Thurston for a discount on your first order. Let's get back to the episode. Yeah, even, even when Elon more. does something really random that no other CEO does, yeah. like square it, yeah. people. Um, even still, people are like, oh, well, don't underestimate Elon. He knows what he's doing. Yeah. Um, so people have that trust. Have a, one final example. Cristiano Ronaldo has more followers than every single football club combined. Mm. One player. So what I'm saying here is people love people. We love faces and voices and stories. We buy into that and then we buy into anything they touch. And if that person's involved, we want to get involved. So this is just a very human thing. Um, and it's very hard for a business to succeed without a key person of influence. And it's very easy to succeed if you do a deal with a key person of influence. Do they, do they need to have a big online presence to be classified as a KPI? No, there's a difference between a key person of influence and an influencer. I normally think of a key person of influence traditionally in most industries as someone who's got thousands or tens of thousands of followers, but normally not hundreds of thousands unless it's a, one of these big businesses. Mm -hmm. um, and normally they're not just purely playing the job of being on Instagram or something like that. They're, they're actually running the business. They're making decisions. They're, and here's a bit of a difference. The influencer wants to be in the spotlight. They're saying, look at me, check me out, right? How, how awesome am I? So they're trying to get in the spotlight. Key person of influence is saying, don't look at me, look at that. So they're more like being the spotlight. They're actually shining the light onto the thing that they want you to look at. Mm -hmm. They're using their brand and their profile to direct you towards something. So you're not going to see Elon running around going, check me out, I'm Elon. He's saying, look at this rocket launch we've just done. Look at this new car we're launching. Look at this, look at free speech. We need to have a free speech platform. So he's running around saying, this is what I want you to be thinking about. He's directing your mindset towards something. That's a very big difference between the influencer and the key person of influence. Mm -hmm. An influencer who has a business and maybe that business is doing well, do you think that they could potentially face difficulty when it comes to exiting and selling the business because it, the success of it is so reliant upon them being a part of it. Less of a problem than you'd think. So everyone thinks that the influencer gets stuck on the exit, but in reality, it very rarely does. And I'll tell you why. When people buy a company, and I've sold a few, they look at, number one, do you have a core team who are going to stick around? Um, and most acquirers feel comfortable with a team of about 30 people plus, but they will take 10. So in some cases, they want, 10, but ideally 30 people. So if the influencer can build a team of 30 people who know what they're doing and those people go with the business, that's step one. Step two is they want proprietary assets. Proprietary assets means that what you're selling is a standalone thing. So if it's an app, it's an app. If it's uh, supplements, it's supplements. If it's phones, it's phones. But it's a standalone proprietary asset. It has its own data and its own brand and its own systems. And like we know that that product is a standalone thing mm -hmm. that people are actually buying. And then the third thing is recurring revenue. So recurring revenue is where it's very predictable for the chief financial officer to predict forward what will this revenue stream, what will happen? What are the levers that grow it? What will what has to happen for it to decline or to stay flat. So if a CFO can predict the revenue, ideally through predictable recurring revenue, when you have those three things, the team, the, the underlying asset and the predictable revenue, the business is saleable at that point. Mm. So here's what a typical exit would look like. Uh, let's say a private equity firm comes in and they say, we want to buy this. 
but we want to pay you 200 grand a year to continue to be the face of it. Um, or we want to pay you a couple hundred grand a year to be the face of it for two years. But during that time, we want you to start building up two, three, four other faces of this where you start sharing the stage with the new faces that we're signing up. Mm -hmm. So they come in and they say, okay, well, we're going to have you plus, you know, this amazing woman and this guy and this person and this person who's coming through. And now we're going to run some events with you and we're going to get photo shoots together and we're going to get you guys kind of like all working together a little bit once a quarter and then we're going to crossfade you out. But it's going to be a two-year thing and we're going to pay you a lot of money while you crossfade. Mm -hmm. What would you do if you were Mr. Beast? Uh, Mr. Beast, I would do uh, like what he's doing is smart. When I talk about proprietary asset, those chocolates – that's a proprietary asset. He's building a chocolate brand that has standalone value. He's selling that chocolate brand into channels that repeat purchase those chocolates. Um, he could easily sell Beastables. Um, it's recurring revenue. It's proprietary. Um, and he's probably got a team who, who run it. Mm -hmm. um, so I think he's doing the smart thing, which is that he's not just taking sponsor deals. He does do some sponsor deals, but he's building his own asset. He's using his profile to build out this ecosystem of assets, you know, that he will own multi-billion dollar businesses. Mm -hmm. So he has this pool of people who like him and trust him. The more he can find the right co-founders and import, really important that he finds co-founders that he trusts who are skilled and able to build out an actual business, he could have multiple billion dollar businesses. So he's, he's getting equity of these businesses equity yeah what's the difference between having equity and then having shares it's like rent versus owning the house mm -hmm. so imagine that there's a house and imagine that myself and three people own the house we each have a share in the house right mm -hmm. so there's one quarter share between the four of us so let's say it's a million pound house and we all put in 250 grand now we own the house the um the income is the rent how much rent comes in uh, to the house. So with a business, you own the shares of the business, that's the equity, or you own the income of the business, right? So y uh, you think that these things are just directly proportionate, they're not. So you can have a highly paid CEO who has no equity. They could get a million a year, high income, but no equity in the business, they don't own the business. Um, you could have someone who is a massive equity holder but doesn't earn any income from the business because they don't, they started, let's say they started it back in 1980 and now they still own all the, own a big chunk of billions of, you know, well, actually Bill Gates, he owns, I think 1% of Microsoft still, and it's worth you know, tens of billions, but he doesn't have any income from Microsoft because he doesn't work in Microsoft. Mm -hmm. So he doesn't have the income. He just owns the equity. Um, What's um, the experience you've had so far with, partnerships and going into business with someone i'm sure there's a few people who are listening to this they're thinking about starting something maybe they want to start with whether it be a friend uh, mm -hmm. a member of the family or even somebody who they they just know within their circle what advice would you give to them well for starters co-founders and partnerships massively outperform so you you're going to do better if you have collaborators mm -hmm. business is ultimately a team sport and if you can't encourage someone to join your business without equity, then you have to come up with an equity deal, right? Mm -hmm. So you might get together and start a business with a friend. 
you're going to do better because one of you is going to focus on sales. The other one's going to focus on customer delivery. You're going to solve way more problems, way faster. You're going to bounce ideas off each other. Um, but obviously, obviously there are risks and there's complexity with, with more people involved in anything. But if you know in the future, I want to have a decent sized business, millions of revenue, really great profits. You're going to need people. Mm-hmm. There's you don't get there without teams of people around you. So you're going to have to find a way to bring in teams. The thing that you need to keep in mind is alignment. Alignment means that you both know what each other's goals are and that you're happy with those goals. And you also, a low risk way is to have a, a start and a finish point where we're going to do this together for two years and see like at the end of two years, we sell the business or we close the business and go our separate ways. You have something, you can have something like that. Um, one thing for your listeners to pay attention to is that when somebody gets married, immediately the alignment changes or has kids. So you can have two great friends. Both of you are single. Both of you are totally aligned. You you know you share a house. You run a business together. You go eat at the same restaurants at the same time. You hang out and party at the same clubs together. Everything's going so great. One of you gets married. One of you has kids that thing is just going to come straight off the rails. Mm. So if you don't know to expect that, um, then it hits you like a truck. But if you've already talked about in advance that when one of us gets married or one of us has kids, we need to either work out whether we're still aligned, reevaluate the partnership, buy each other out, um, and here's how we would handle that. Here's what's fair. Here's who we would go to to settle disputes. Here's like our mentor that we both trust in advance. A few things like that. Because mm-hmm. um, marriages and kids really screw alignment up between co-founders. How's it been from your experience? Exactly that. <laughs> yeah. I, was, it, was it a shock? It was. It was a total shock. Yeah, because I, I went into business with one of my best friends in in a business, um, and uh, yeah, he got married and completely changed. As in, or for the worse, I imagine. Uh, well, from my perspective, for the worse. From her perspective, much better. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess yeah, that's. Um, a difficulty. I think I was listening to a podcast with Ben Francis, the founder of Gymshark, and he's just he's just had twins, I think, and he's just uh, he was he was saying how it's you know he, he can't be so selfish anymore. He can't you know spend all of his time it changes on everything. the job. He's, but it, but let me let me paint the other side of the picture. My goodness, does it just galvanize you like nothing else? Having kids and being married is uh, not being married makes. You you always have this massive piece of software in your head that's looking for looking around, right? So you've like if you're a computer, you're running a big program called Find a Girl, right? And uh, or multiple girls, or you know a new the latest girl. So you've got that software running in the background all the time, and it uses up all your RAM. Mm-hmm. Um, once you're married, you move to a new point of stability. If you you know obviously you need to marry the right person, but you have this new like there's this new level of stability in your life Mm -hmm. and then you have kids you have this very deep meaning focus that comes with kids so you you do the important stuff and you get strategic and you get really thoughtful about what's going to work what's not going to work um and you can also the the great thing with kids as well is you can if you don't want to do something you just say look i've got little kids i can't do it (laughs) it's great did, did you feel as though when you had kids that you, you had an incentive to, I don't know, work harder or make more money? Or you, I did, guess you were already at a point where you were financially yeah, fine. 
Yes, but but yeah, you do get that new level of drive. There's something that is biologically baked into you that is as soon as your kids arrive, everything levels up, right? So suddenly it's like you get this, uh, you know, energy level, uh, focus, this huge thing happens where suddenly there's these people in the world who are way more important than anyone else, including you. You would literally jump out of a building for them. Mm. So it's weird to have that appear in your life. Like it, it's a massive shift in your identity. You've, you're now responsible for these other people and you don't know how they're going to, you don't know how they're going to survive. You don't know how they're going to, especially in a fast changing world, like the one we've got, you don't know if they're going to have jobs in the future because of AI or all this sort of stuff. So it's like, boom, I've got to, I'm not just going to provide now. I'm going to provide for the next decade. Mm -hmm. So it kind of fires this thing up. You start thinking long-term, like it's very easy as a single guy to just think about, well, what do I want to do now and in the short term? You think in decades when you've got kids, you start working out what year will my kids be 20? What year will my kids be 30? How old will I be at that point? Where will I, how will, how will I afford what are the things that I want to do for them? And, and like the things like at the, what age will they be the right age to take to Disneyland? Right, like the, all this sort of stuff. What age is the right age to give them a, a mobile phone? Yeah, you start. So you start seeing the world differently. You start analyzing, you know, things. You start connecting with people at a different level. Mm -hmm. um, Are you strategically raising them to be winners and to not spoil them? It's, it's tr yeah. Well, I don't want them spoiled. Um, Have you got you got a boy and a girl? I got two boys and a girl. Okay. Yeah. So it's really important to raise them in the right way. Obviously a big part of that is just not introducing them to corrosive technology. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's hard raising kids, you know, you got to let them watch the news. Your <laughs> they, mentor they do not watch the news. No, <laughs> no. Um, it, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a challenge. You want to, you want to raise kids so that they're ready for the world that we're going into. Mm -hmm. So I want to talk about obviously the book you've, You've written how many books now? Six. First of all, why did you decide to write the first book? Uh, well, I was going through a real moment of like, what am I about? Uh, remember, I'd lost the business in the global mm. financial crisis. Uh, Barack Obama had just won the election um, and he'd done it through social media. I had just run a business for 10 years that was all mm. about putting people on stages and I'd been working with this concept of key people of influence everything started clicking into gear that social media is an engine for becoming a key person of influence. And I just kind of like started seeing the world that this is going to be a big thing. Mm -hmm. It used to be very hard to be a key person of influence. You literally had to get on television um, and you had to get on radio and you had to be on like the news and all this sort of stuff. You had to have a New York Times bestselling book published by Penguin. And then around this time, social media changed and the publishing landscape changed. And I'm like, I've been working with these people for, decade, for a decade I know what the formula is. So I started writing about the formula for becoming the key person of influence right at the very beginning of the whole social media boom. Um, if anything, a little bit too early before it was even taken seriously. But that became the manual for a lot of people. Literally thousands of people have since gone on and applied that and become big and well-known. How, how do you know what is the right time to write a book? Because a few people have said it to me and they're like, oh, you should write a book. And I think, I feel like the book is not finished yet there's still more of a story which i i need to live before i can write about it because yeah. I, I feel like if i wrote a book now i feel like in five years time i'll look back at it and be like oh there's i'd probably change quite a bit about Do what a I've second said. book 
do six. <laughs> so that's a, this that's, was the first one you wrote? Yeah. Yeah. Do you, do you ever look at it and think, uh, actually, I don't. Oh, yeah. There's parts of that where I go, oh, wait a second. Like, I wish I had approached it different, knowing what I now know, of course. But I guess that's the problem. Anytime you write a book, that's always going to be the case. You can't just go and it's delete always, a chapter. It, it's write... always going to be the case. You're always going to have, a, a, you know, you're always learning, right? Um, but going through the process of a book is the process of figuring stuff out. Um, and it's the process of clarifying your thinking. The other thing too, there's different types of books. So there are thought leadership books where you're trying to make an argument towards something. And then there are manuals or textbooks where you're just trying to break something down. Mm. And then there's like personal biographies where you're just telling your story. The book that is best for someone like you to re uh, write would be something that is like a thought leadership book where you're trying to make an argument for someone to do something differently, right? You're saying, this is what I think you should do. This is the path I think you should go on. It's not focused on you. You're not saying, check me out. Here's my story. And here's what I did at age five and six and seven. And you know, all this mm -hmm. sort of stuff. You're actually saying, here's what your story is. And let me help you to go on this story. And let me share with you what I've learned. You know, like take something like the four hour work week. Tim Ferriss is saying, I think that the world has changed and you don't have to work anywhere near as hard as you thought you did you probably only have to do about four hours a week and the rest can be really passionate, fun play, mm -hmm. right? Um, lean startup. Hey, I think there's a new way to start businesses. You should start a business a bit like this. Um, and most authors will tell you that when they start the book, it's really just a blog that they have in their mind. Mm -hmm. And then it builds and builds and builds and builds. I imagine it would, um, once you've written something like that, when it comes to actually doing any public speaking or speaking events, like, everything is just there mm. and it's so perfectly organized that it just rolls off the top you've organized your thoughts yeah you've really gotten organized have you are you a big proponent of reading is this something you've i've gotten you've... a lot more value out of writing than reading i think that people i see i see people who read a book a week or a book a month and they're all like about reading i don't see their lives change that much like mm -hmm. I said, there are plenty of broke people who read money books and they're like all, and they're not their first money book, their 10th money book. Mm. Um, I've not seen many people who have written a book where the book didn't change their life in some way. So when you put a book out, magic happens. Mm -hmm. You connect with people at such a deeper level. Um, you become an author. People book you to speak at stuff. Um, You've got this product that sells all the time. Um, you can give away hundreds of copies if you want to give them away. Mm -hmm. so, and you've clarified your thinking. You are just genuinely, you, you, at the end of the book, you're smarter about the topic than at the beginning of the book because you've had to figure it out to get through the writing process. So well, I wonder, you say you don't think you have uh, any particular skill sets, but I would probably say that writing a book is a yeah, skill that you have. I seem to churn them out, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Is is there is there anybody in the business world who you really look up to and admire? There's lots. Um, yeah, I I I have a bit of a criteria that they don't just have their business in order, but they've also got their life in order. I, I really like to look at people who've been able to juggle kids and family and marriage and business. Mm -hmm. or, you know, they've got that whole package. Um, as someone who's married with kids, you know, for me, I look at guys who are single and I'm like, you know, single, no kids, you know, fantastic. Bastard. You're on easy mode, right? <laughs> yeah, um, and it's like, uh, 
but it's like, yeah, cool. There's a bunch of strategies that might work for you that wouldn't work for me. Or there's a bunch of, there's a, or there's just this whole other dimension to my life that has to work, mm -hmm. which isn't included in that story. So for me, I'm normally looking for, to learn from people who I think have got a bit of a package deal going on. Mm -hmm. Do you think that you can be extremely good at organizing businesses, but be on the individual level, very unorganized? Or do you feel that if you aren't an organized person, that's going to improve your chances of being able to actually organize how uh, a company works and how it's structured? Like, would you class yourself as being an organized person? No, I'm not. I'm not particularly organized. I'm really good at surrounding myself with organized people. My strategy for anything is that I need to find the right person. So my whole life works because I have an assistant who I talk to my assistant about what I'm trying to get done. And then everything goes to my assistant and then my assistant schedules my diary and I just do what's in the diary. Um, and I don't run any of my businesses. People who are very organized run my businesses. So I've never tried to be a good organized operator. I am a chaotic kind of thinker and I like to get my head in the clouds and I like to spend time daydreaming and I love to go down YouTube rabbit holes and watch different stuff. And, and sometimes it has nothing to do with, with business, but I, the people who I surround myself with are phenomenal. My co-founder, Steve in um, ScoreApp is this unbelievable technology guy who he understands tech and coding and he runs an amazing development team and he's super organized and he's super smart. Um, and I'm nothing like him. We, mm. we compliment each other. I hope we compliment him. He certainly compliments me. So would you say sooner rather than later, get yourself an assistant or a good oh, one? Yeah. Well, you know, I told you about when I went uh, to the Latin jive dancing. Yeah. I rock up in London. I don't know anybody. My first person was, a, was an assistant. I was trying to find an assistant. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, you need, an like most people, you need an assistant to get things done that like to build a business, there's just hundreds of things to do. You need another pair of hands and another brain and another person who's going to help you get things done. Mm -hmm. And very rapidly, you need someone in sales. You need someone who's an assistant. Um, you know, there's just always stuff to do. If you're trying to do it all yourself, it's too hard to stay up there with the vision and also, you know, like data entry or, you know, filling in a bank form or any of that sort of stuff. It's just too, too much. And you can't bounce between visionary and implementer. It takes time to get back up into the mm. vision and it takes time to come down from the clouds and get your head in the detail. Do you ever fear that your assistant might one day be like, Hey, I don't want to do this anymore. I want to go do something else. Uh, that, you have to find another one. No, look, people, people have left my businesses all the time. Some like someone who's been with me for 10 years just got her dream job. Mm -hmm. 10 years ago when she joined the company, I asked her, tell me a bit about your dream, dream job, dream job. And she described this job that she imagined doing, but was a bit afraid to do, right? Um, uh, like in the police force type thing. And, um, and I said, well, look, one day apply for the job. And, and you know, when that day comes, like, I'll be happy for you. And the day came 10 years later, She's been a phenomenal asset to the whole business and she's been awesome. Uh, and I'm really proud of her and I've just bought her a nice watch and all of that sort of stuff. I'm really proud of her for what she's achieved over the 10 years, but it's now time for her to go do this other dream job that she's had in mind for so long. And I will attract another amazing operator. There's mm. someone great is going to come 
and they'll join the team and they'll they'll actually come and take things to the next level. So yeah, no, I'm, I'm not afraid of that. People can come and go. When it comes to, I guess, quite a large part of what you do now is buying, selling companies. Mm -hmm. When you look at companies to purchase, do you look at the companies that are already working mm -hmm. and you can almost predict that they're going to continue to do well? Or like, would you ever see the potential in a company, but just look at it and be like, okay, this is... It, the way it's set up and structured is a mess. Mm -hmm. I've done that. I've I've done turnaround, and I actually did a successful turnaround. And within ten months, I bought something that was in like minutes from bankruptcy, and we sold it for a lot of money. Ten months later, so I've done that. Why did you do, Why did you look at that particular business? I just got it? a phone call out of the blue, and the guy said, um, "We're about to get foreclosed on. Um, the business is in real trouble, and we need." help and support we, like can you come and look at this and i said yeah cool i had a look and i bought the whole business as is and then we fixed it and turned it around and sold it um so i have done that but it's actually what's better for me now is find something that's really working and that is a good strategic fit with what i've already got and then make it work even better the truth is that most of the real money that is made is not in starting businesses. It's in scaling them. Really? So you you would make, if you started something from scratch and got it to 2 million, that's a really hard thing to do. So tiny percentage of entrepreneurs do that. If you can buy something at 2 million or, or take ownership of something at 2 million or get equity at 2 million and scale it to 20 million, that's where all the money starts to get really made. Because in order to sell a company, I know this sounds crazy to a lot of people if you're outside of this space, but it's actually way, way, way easier to sell a business that is massive than small. So for example, if you had a business to sell that was 200 million, there's way more buyers for that than 20 million. And if you had a business to sell for 2 billion, there's more, lots of people who want to buy that compared to 200 million. Why is that? Because... The types of companies that can throw big money and, and buy and acquire with cash, they're big businesses. They don't want to buy little businesses. They want to buy big businesses. Um, so, you know, if you go to the top end of town and they're sitting on billions of dollars worth of cash or assets and they have banks that, investment banks that say, hey, you can lend any amount over 100 million. Um, so for anything you want to do above a hundred million, we'll fund it for you. Mm -hmm. Um, so the way the big end of town works is they typically might take say 50 million of their own cash and then leverage up another 200 million of bank money. And then they come in and buy something for 250 million and then they scale that up. Yeah. That's how they think. So if you, anything, anything under, um, you know, like the, the top end of town, they think a hundred million dollars is a small business. Can people without having a large amount of money partake in the process of buying and selling companies? The the answer is actually yes, but it's a very complex set of skills. So it's best to just... So, well, like, for example, money. if I wanted to start with no money right now, I could be a general partner of my own private equity firm. I could raise limited partners and have a pool of capital from myself and limited partners or even not much for myself. Um, I could then bring in debt and I could structure a private equity pool of funds to go buy a business. And I could bring in a CFO and a CTO and a COO and a CMO and put together that team and that capital. Mm -hmm. I could do that because I know what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. But the, the issue is 
the, the truth is, is the money is so commoditized. Money's not even a thing. Like it's like when you don't have money, you imagine that money solves all the problems. When you've got money, money doesn't solve many problems. It's actually just a commodity. And the funny thing is, is that the more you start moving in this circles, the more everyone's trying to throw money at you. And your issue is like, oh, what will I take money for? And why would I take it? And I'll take it if it's, you know, for a purpose. Like I don't need to raise quarter of a million, but I will raise quarter of a million because I want these 20 people pushing the wheelbarrow. Mm. And it's like, okay, cool. We'll do that. Um, what is it that makes somebody very good at buying and selling companies? Like what is their skill set? Is it just their ability to organize or they? Yeah, it's the ability to put together the right executive team. So they have to be a, like, if you want to get into really buying and selling companies, the ability to attract talented executives around you, like people who are actually going to run the business um, and the ability to get the trust from the capital, um, whoever's lending the money or investing the money, um, though, uh, like being a key person of influence, essentially. Mm -hmm. But a key person of influence doesn't have to be the skilled person. Sam Altman, who's got OpenAI, he is actually not a technologist in terms of he, he doesn't have technical skills, but he's the number one AI key person of influence at the moment. And when he, when they booted him off as an executive and they said, no, no, you, you're out, you're fired, 700 people, 95% of the team said, if he leaves, we leave. So it's him so who- that's why he came back. That's why he came back. And they had to leave because he's that key person of influence and he's not doing the work, but people want to work for him or with him. Mm -hmm. So he's attracting the executive team and the technical team around him, and he's keeping the investors. So even Microsoft, who's the main investor, said, well, if he leaves, he can come here. And Microsoft's value went up by 50 billion in a day. Um, and then they said, oh, no, he's going to leave, and it stabilized. Mm -hmm. So th there are these key people of influence who y you magic up teams around you. So mm -hmm. if, if you have the ability, to attract executives who want to work with you, that's actually more powerful than just knowing how to do stuff yourself. So I guess, yeah, you, anybody who's listening to this, they should really be thinking about how can I become that key person? Yeah, and also play number two to a key person of influence. Be number two, number three. Like you, you, a great place to start is find someone who's clearly a key person of influence and just be in their orbit as close as you can being a number two for a while. You know, a couple of years of being a number two is awesome. There's nothing wrong with being a number two. There are plenty of number twos who make a lot of money mm -hmm. um, by being in the orbit. Someone who was your number two would w make so much more money than trying to go off and replicate what you did. Mm -hmm. It's interesting because I, when I started all of this, I was seen as just Mike, the fitness guy. Mm -hmm. And although that was like, it was quite cool to be considered someone of interest in that industry i didn't want to be stuck with that label forever mm -hmm. particularly when it you know a, a large uh degree of your success in fitness is based around your appearance physique yeah and that is something which is not going to last it's forever not. yeah like it's i'm proud i mean I, I will always be in shape and i'll be fit and healthy but you know uh, i'm actually old enough to know of a insanely successful fitness influencer who had the physique but now doesn't and had to make the transition for that mm. for that exact same reason. But they, they were successful. They were successful, but it but it shifted. Yeah. Right. So you're, you're absolutely right. And this is, I mean, doing the podcast has been great because that's kind of opened up a completely different. People see a different side. Yeah.
Yeah. And, and if you can transition, like Jessica Elba, super smart, transitioned into business owner. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, she's got the honest company worth 2 billion or something like that. Um, like uh, the, the really smart actresses in Hollywood, they went off and actually took their, their success, which was going to be short lived in Hollywood and turned it into floating a company. Um, Reese Witherspoon is a billionaire now. Um, because she set up this whole other company. So she used her fame to to parlay into entrepreneurship. It can be quite difficult because usually it might come with a bit of resistance or I don't know, people might not be happy with it. They just look at you and think, hang on, this is not what you do. Like you're supposed to be the fitness guy. You should just stay in your you lane. You take people on a journey. Yeah. Look at, look at, I, I saw Arnie in London. Uh, I went to his book launch. Uh, when I say a book launch, that sounds small. It was actually at the Royal Albert Hall with 5,000 people. But I was there in the front row with Arnie there. And he talks about he was just totally pigeonholed as the bodybuilder. Mm-hmm. And then he's, now I'm going to be the greatest actor that ever lived. And now I'm going to be a politician. I'm going to be the governor of California, right? Now I'm going to be a property developer, right? He, he just took everyone on a journey. And he's like, here's how I'm going to take you on a journey. And he just pitched it into existence. He he crafted his pitch. This is who I am. This is how I'm going to be. You can buy into it now. I don't care. Jump on the train or get on the train later. Um, you know, and he he just took people on the journey. And even what you just said, I can't be the fitness guy forever. I can do that for a period of time, but you know, things change. And I need and I want and and through this journey I've learned something. Um and you've connected with people and all all of that. I think I don't think anyone would resist uh you know, you being a CEO of a massive company based upon, you know, the journey that people have seen you go on. What does your journey look like for the next couple of years, 10 years? So my passion is develop entrepreneurs who stand out, scale up, and make a positive impact in the world. Um, that's my underlying passion. I buy and sell businesses and I start stuff and all of that. But the but the deeper theme for me is I love entrepreneurship as a vehicle for change in the world. Um, and, f- you know, there was a period of time where I went to um, India went into the slums, I traveled around. I went into um, rural Uganda and saw people living in like mud huts. And, um, you know, uh, I saw lots of orphaned kids, like uh, where all the kids had died, uh, parents had died of uh, AIDS and they're being looked after by a small group of older people and all of this kind of stuff I'd never been exposed to in Australia. And there was also environmental stuff that I became concerned about, like plastic in the oceans and all this. Anyway, Occasionally, I became aware that there were these businesses that would champion a cause, use their entrepreneurial skills to like clean up the oceans or bring water to villages or get medication into parts of the world that don't have medication. And that for me would always like bring a tear to my eye. I would always just feel this deep sense of like, that is what I really am called to do. This idea that entrepreneurship is something that transforms the world in a positive way. So what I'm most passionate about is that I love the idea of being part of a global community who are using their businesses as force for good. Mm-hmm. Have you got any examples of that? Loads. Um, so recently I've been working with this woman called Dr. Zareen um, um, Ahmed, and she had a terrible situation where her daughter was murdered and, um, uh, and she basically started this business called Gift Wellness. Gift Wellness is a company that um, uh, they do feminine products. Um, so all sorts of things like tampons and pads and stuff you'd find in the bathroom. But they totally manage the supply chain from uh, boutique uh, suppliers 
throughout like Pakistan and India. Um, and they also have stripped away all the plastic packaging. And they also, whenever a woman in the West um, buys a product, they gift products to women living in refugee camps. It's just an awesome business. Mm -hmm. um, so that would be an example. Um, but even like our business, we do a lot of training and development with our entrepreneur community around how to select something called, we have, we work with a company called B1G1, buy one, give one, where you can have these micro donations to causes that you're passionate about. Every time someone buys this thing, it automatically creates a gift for this person or, or um, uh, a giving impact for, for this person. So you might have a business that sells, you know, AV equipment. And then it also um, works with removing cataracts from people in, you know, Indonesia. So you're actually doing this fun thing over here, but it's also impacting people over there. And it's part of your business's story. Mm. Yeah. Uh, there's a quote from the book, which is quite interesting. Uh, the world has changed. So must you, your best thinking five years ago is your baggage today. Mm. So how do you think the world is changing and in what do you think it's going to be in five years time? I remember I wrote that a long time ago, um, but it could not be more true than it is today. So artificial intelligence is going to change everything top to bottom, left to right. Every single, every single strata of society, every single industry is going to be changed by artificial intelligence. So it, rarely is there a technology that is what's called a general purpose technology. And this general purpose technology means that it has all sorts of general purposes, such as electricity or internet or printing press, uh, petroleum products, car, uh, steam engines. So these are general purpose technologies that don't just impact one thing, they impact all things, right? So artificial intelligence is the biggest general purpose technology ever. Um, it fundamentally pulls the rug on how humans normally create value. Um, and we're just only scratching the surface of what it's what it can do and how it can roll out. So if you're just going along business as usual at the moment and not considering what life might look like and coming up with your own way to disrupt your own life, someone else is going to come and disrupt your own life. Some of the most unhappy people I know are people who expected their lives to just stay the same and disruption happens. Um, and some of the happiest people I know are people who recognize that change is constant and they surf the wave rather than getting dumped by it. Mm. So this is where you just sort of, it's where you zoom out from your own life and say, Hey, wait a second. Like I'm living an adventure. This is the most incredible time in history. This is the first time in history. There's more, where there's potential to access global markets with global products. I can live and work from anywhere. I can access insane amounts of capital that's all over the world that's been pumped into the economy constantly. There are cities all over the world that are booming. There's frontier cities. There's this, why am I stuck in this little tiny mindset in this one place, in this one industry, in this one way of doing things? The whole world is my oyster. Sometimes it's just that moment where you just go, actually, zoom out. What's possible? Um, so what I'm saying here is, it's very human to just kind of go, oh, well, you know, I had a good idea five years ago to do X, Y, and Z. I'll just keep doing it. Far better to say, hey, what if that was my baggage? What if my, what if the thing holding me back was my best decision five years ago? Um, so it's, it's designed to be provocative and just say, let's, let's rethink the world. Mm -hmm. Let's rethink your world. Do you have somebody who you employ who's kind of keeping up with all the advancements in AI or is that something you're yeah, personally no, 
Well, Look me at. personally, but yeah, no, we've got, we've got like Professor Andy Pardo is on our team and he's like an AI professor from the last 25 years in London. He invented all sorts of cool tech um, and he's on our, he's on our uh, advisory board and um, I get the opportunity to, to talk with some of the top thought leaders in the business community about AI and how it plugs in. We've got developers who work in the company who are like, you know, doing what developers do. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm just surrounded by people who we spark each other off with conversations about, have you seen this? Have you seen that? Like, uh, you know, it, it's a, it's a massive thing. Like, and mm. people listening might say, oh, it hasn't got anything to do with my industry. It's got everything to do with every industry. Well, even with creators, like AI is, you can now ask AI for video ideas. It can come up with thumbnails. Yeah. It can even mimic your voice. I think I've got someone who works for me who's mm-hmm. wanting to try out, um, creating content using uh, an AI version of myself where it's just I don't even have to be the one talking. In 12 months from now, your shorts will probably be an AI. So you will go into studio and record all sorts of ways and inflections of saying something Mm. and then you'll hand that over to your videography team. They will just invent things for you to say or you might invent some things for you to say Mm. Um, and then it'll just pump out variations of that and it'll all... it's really wild. And this is not like something that's coming. It's here. It's just, you're not using it yet, but I, I can easily see a scenario where I have almost, or AI has taken my personality while you're super fit, get scanned, right? So that you can just be permanently. (laughs) And then the real mic can be this blob on the beach, (laughs) but the AI mic is just perpetually ripped forever. (laughs) Yeah. I could, it's almost like you can clone yourself because let's say that one of the problems I had when I wanted to scale my coaching business was I could always uh, find other coaches, train them up to be as close to me as possible. Mm-hmm. But there was always people who they were like, oh, this is good. I'm getting results, but really I just want to, I want to work, work with my, with you, yeah. so I'm imagining this scenario where there will almost be a case where there could there could be a thing which is almost almost identical to the way that I talk, the mm-hmm. way that I think. It's coming. Even the yeah. the the personality and the humor, and then I could that that thing that AI could work with an infinite amount of people. It, it could, yeah. It could just take all the podcasts you've ever done, like me with with six books. It could read through all the books, find all the quotable quotes, turn them into shorts that look like me saying it, but it's just finding stuff in the book that is a quote and turning it into a short, all of that's coming. Mm-hmm. Um, like every, everything's about to change. The whole game is about to change. AI changes everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and here's the big one too for anyone listening. The two superpowers that AI has is superpower one is actually getting you to consume way more than you thought you were going to consume. So getting you to run down a rabbit hole, spend two hours on TikTok, spend more money on Amazon, listen to more time on Spotify. So AI is designed to try and get you consuming. That's not good news. And then, yeah, and it's good at it. It's getting better and better. And most people will fall into that trap where they become hyper-consumptive and they just consume, consume, consume. And and like all in the not too distant future, all the ads around us and the, the actual built environment will start moving and changing based upon recognizing who you are and what it wants to sell you. So we're going to have these AI campaigns that play 3D chess around us to get you to consume more. 
And the second superpower, which very few people are going to use, is the power to create. So what we're describing is you and me having the ability to create way more. I can only do 10 shorts uh, a day, but AI can do 1,000 shorts a day. Mm -hmm. um, so this is hyper-creation. Um, in our score app business, people like something that used to take us genuinely six weeks happens in six minutes. And I'm not kidding. Like we used to do brainstorming for concepts and writing questions, thousand words worth of content, email marketing campaigns. We now push a button in score app and it goes, here's the concept. Here's six concepts. Which one do you want? That one. Uh, here's the categories. Which categories do you want? They, these ones. Here's the questions. These ones. Here's the email campaign. Boom. And then as soon as people are interacting with it, Here's a press release. Here's an email marketing campaign. Here's, a, here's today's um, tweets. Here's today's LinkedIn posts. And it's just boom. All of that stuff used to take us six weeks to get to that same point that we can be at in, mm -hmm. in like minutes. So it makes you a hyper creator, but it's going to make 95% of people hyper consumers. Yeah. And it's going to divide society in a big way. You've got to make a decision now to actively be a creator, not a consumer. What do you, I mean, are you excited for it? For the I don't know what to be because we can't see around the corner. If you imagine what it would have been like for a person who plowed the fields in the agricultural age to see a steam tractor that can plow a field. So it used to take a hundred people to plow a field and now one person on a steam tractor can plow the field in a day. And it's like, well, what are we all going to do? none of those people know what it looks like in an industrial society. Now, if you fast forward to today, we're here in Dubai, you take someone from the agricultural age and say, look at all these restaurants and entertainment and all that. They go, oh, great. It worked out just fine. Fabulous. Um, but they have no idea what it looks like. So we, we have no idea. Growing up in an industrial age, we have no idea what it looks like in a post-AI world. Mm -hmm. And it could be incredible. It could be terrible. It could be terrible, then incredible. It could be incredible, then terrible. So um, we just don't know. The economic, our economic systems break down. Um, our labor markets break down. You know, like effectively, all the top jobs they can just be automated now. We thought these jobs could never be automated. We thought it would be impossible to be a doctor or an engineer or an architect um, or a, a creative writer or a songwriter. We thought those are impossible to automate. Mm -hmm. But now push a few buttons and how many songs do you want? How many architectural designs do you want? How many plans do you want? How many animations do you want? Just boom, done. So it changes the nature of everything. With with what you experienced in 2008, 2009, would you feel as though you, your companies are in a place where they can be resilient yeah. in an economic downturn? Yeah, disruption makes you better. Mm -hmm. uh, like I love the fact that I got slapped around. I would have been a nightmare if I had have done that $14 million deal. Mm -hmm. Like if I had got 14 million bucks at 25, uh, that would have been it. Mm -hmm. I would have thought I was king of the hill. I would have stopped innovating. I would have been completely ego driven and I would have like been on easy mode. I'm so happy that didn't go ahead. Mm -hmm. um, best thing that ever happened really. And then being punched in the face with, COVID, being punched in the face with GFC, every time we've been punched in the face, we get better. And if you look at how do you get fit, it's through resistance training. It's through yeah. breakdown. Businesses get so much better the more they get beaten up. Um, so I'm very happy that we've been through, I've been through 20 years of disruption after disruption. I started my business right after the dot-com crash 
and like everything was in recession and I've just like done, I've, I've had disruption, disruption, disruption. And now we've got really robust businesses. Mm -hmm. Oh, this is probably one of the podcasts where I've learned most. It's, <laughs> cool. been, it's been so good. That's great. Um, for, for anyone who is listening, I recommend you check out the books. Is there a particular order which you would tell people to go through them? So the order of the f the main four is entrepreneur revolution sets the scene for where the world that we live in and the mindset that you need to be an entrepreneur. Key person of influence is about building your brand. Oversubscribed is running campaigns. 24 assets is turning it into a valuable business that can be sold for a lot of money. So those are the four and that's the order to, re to read them in. And then scorecard marketing is like uh, a little spin-off one that talks about how to do scorecard campaigns. And these are the lead generation campaigns, wait lists, um, like how to how to do those fast little campaigns to generate leads and sales. And probably more on the way. I've, yeah, I'm working on more. Yeah. <laughs> how to run businesses and run a family. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I, I wrote a book called uh, How to Raise Entrepreneurial Kids. Oh, really? Yeah, I co-authored it with uh, with an amazing woman. And, and yeah, we have a book on how to raise entrepreneurial kids. Amazing. Thank you, Daniel. Much appreciated. Cheers, and um, everybody can find you on socials, I imagine. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Connect on any of the socials and um, yeah, let me know how you get on. Awesome, man. Thank you very much. Cheers. That was great.